something that was more difficult than I expected was just the day in day out grind of like whether you wanted to hike or not you had to like there was no if you wanted a day off it was one of those like well too bad like if you take a day off here you're not gonna have enough food to get to town kind of stuff like you had to make the miles pretty much no matter what and that proved harder and harder to me over time that was tom grossmith and you're listening to real talk radio with nicole antoinette episode 164 Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me. The podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. This is a special edition episode of the podcast, which I'm releasing for you as a bonus between seasons 19 and 20. As you might know by now, I'm leaving next week to begin a 700-mile hike of the desert section of the PCT. I'll be going northbound from the Mexican border up to Kennedy Meadows, hopefully, and I'm so excited to be back on trail. I'll be sharing all the real talk, real time updates on Instagram as I go. I'm nick.antoinette on Instagram if you want to follow along. And just like on my previous hikes, I'll be writing one post per day for the entire hike uploaded to Instagram whenever I have cell reception. So that's what I'll be up to for the next six weeks. As for the podcast, season 20, which I've already recorded for you, will be released on April 1st. It's filled with such a wonderful assortment of honest, interesting people, and I really think you're going to love it. And while we're talking about fun upcoming things, I wanted to share a little bit about the summer series of Real Talk retreats that I'm hosting. The Massachusetts retreat is sold out, but there are still a couple spots in the Colorado, Indiana, and UK retreats. These retreats are perfect for women who've been craving more Real Talk in their real lives. Imagine, you know, the deep conversations you've been dying to have, live podcast style interviews with one or two favorite past guests from the show, quality time to work on a creative project of your own, a proven in-depth mid-year reflection and goal-setting workshop that I'll be teaching, plus delicious meals, a relaxing and beautiful setting, a few special surprises, and lots more on our retreat. You can find the details, learn more at NicoleAntoinette.com slash retreats. And at the end of this episode, I'll be joined by Callie, one of the folks who came to the New Year's retreat in Bend this January, and she's going to tell you a little bit more about what you can expect. In the meantime, I'm about to introduce you to today's guest, my long-distance hiking partner, Gent. But in case you're new to Real Talk Radio, I wanted to first quickly share two things. The first thing is the promise that on this show, my guests and I are committed to one simple but powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. That's it. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. I don't have any magic answers. I can't give you a miraculous 10-day, six-step life hack plan for anything. But as a recovering self-help junkie myself, I'm really over that quick fix approach. And my guess is that maybe you are too. Perhaps that's even why you're here. So instead of that, this podcast is a place to dig into honest conversations. We talk about work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health. We talk about grief, fear, courage, change, and pretty much everything in between. My hope is that these conversations will make you laugh, think, and feel less alone, while also challenging you to consider a new perspective from someone whose lived experiences might be different from your own. That's really important. And then the last thing that I wanted to tell you is that you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions on this show because these honest conversations, they're 100% listener funded. They're made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight episode season. The show is and will always be free. 
But if you love it, if these conversations do indeed make you laugh, think, and feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. This tangible financial support is what allows me to keep making new episodes, and it pays everyone involved in Real Talk Radio. That includes me, my sound engineer, Adam Day, and every single one of my guests. It's been a dream for years to be able to pay all my guests, and our community recently met the funding goal that makes that possible. So all the guests whose stories you love are indeed getting paid for their time with us, and higher rates are always paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. I know it's not the norm in the podcast industry to pay guests or to have a listener-funded show, really, but I fully believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And if I want to live in a world where people get paid for the work they do, especially creative work, that means it's up to me to create that model here at Real Talk Radio. So that's what your financial support contributes to. And as a special thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series where I share my real life in real time. Plus, you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for live events and retreats. Also, 5% of each season's profit is donated to a different social justice organization with past donations going to places like Trans Lifeline, Black Lives Matter, and Planned Parenthood. So you can feel really good about that aspect of your pledge contribution as well. Over on the Patreon page, you'll see that there are currently three different funding levels, an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. At the $25 level, we even do live Google Hangouts together after the release of each season, and those are so much fun. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Tom Grossmith, known to me and to many of you by his trail name, Gent. Gent and I met while hiking the PCT last year and wound up covering over 1,300 miles together. We hiked together, we quit the trail together, and next week we'll be heading back to the PCT together, joined by two other friends, to hike the 700-mile desert section from Mexico to Kennedy Meadows. Off-trail, Gent is a woodworker, as well as fifth generation on his family's small farm in Massachusetts. For the past four years, he's worked as a Zamboni mechanic at an ice rink, and his super hands-on career history has included landscaping, welding, carpentry and construction, general handyman projects, and more. In this episode, Gent and I talk a little bit about our PCT hike last year, but then we dive into all the great listener questions we received about long-distance hiking in general. We talk about sleep, money, hygiene, mental health, gear, food, training, our trail family, tips for beginners, what we're doing differently on our upcoming hike than we've each done in previous hikes, and more. So if you're interested in the details of long-distance hiking, I bet you'll love this episode. All of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, let's do this. Gent, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm incredibly excited to be here. I'm excited too. This episode is a long time coming. We met on the PCT last year, hiked together for a really long time. You were involved in a lot of the stories that I told from trail. And when we got off trail, you and I did a 
um, sort of post-hike wrap-up episode conversation that I shared. It was bonus content just for my Patreon community, and it was a listener favorite for sure when I did the end-of-year survey in the Patreon community. One of the questions that I asked was um, for people to share what their you know one to three favorite episodes were from all of 2018, and our little bonus conversation was the favorite for a lot of folks, and so I'm excited that we get to do a full episode together right now. Yeah, I'm thrilled. I'm, yeah, excited doesn't even begin to describe how I feel about it right now. (laughs) Oh, you're funny. Um, So before we get started, um, I'm going to put a link to this in the show notes. But for anyone who is interested, a couple years ago when I hiked the Arizona Trail, um, that was a hike that I did by myself. When I got back, I did a really in-depth like Q&A, listener Q&A episode. Um, So for anyone who wants to hear me talk in more detail about how I first got into long-distance hiking, what it was like as a total beginner, why I kept doing it, even though I was pretty miserable, and some honest thoughts about type two fun and doing hard things. Um, my experiences as a solo female hiker, how I dealt with a lot of fears and loneliness associated with that. Uh, all of that is covered in depth in that episode. So I'll put the link up for that. Not that we, you know, can't talk about those kind of things today, but, um, we have lots of other stuff to cover. So if those topics in particular are of interest to anyone, that would be a good place to hear more about that. So yeah, let's uh, talk about the PCT. Let's do it. So yeah, we met on trail. We hiked together for a little over 1,300 miles. We quit the trail together. We're going back in mid-March to do a 700-mile section. And a few weeks ago, I posted both in the Patreon community and on Instagram to see what questions or topics folks were interested in hearing about when it comes to long-distance hiking, to you know our experience, particularly last year on the PCT, and got so many awesome questions and topic submissions. So we've kind of grouped them by category. We're going to try to cover as much as possible. This is definitely not an exhaustive list by any means. Um, And of course, you know, I can do something like this again. You and I can do this again together. So if um, anyone listening has follow-up questions, you can definitely let us know. But before we get into those hiking specific things, I would love to back up and talk about you a little bit if you are down for that. Of course I am. Can you share a little bit about what you do for work and what your off-trail life is like? Um, So my off-trail life right now is I live on a small little like hobby farm in eastern Massachusetts. Um, We have some chickens, turkeys, and four cows. Uh, It's me and my dad. We have, we just had a calf born on President's Day. So super exciting. Little bull calf walking around out in the pasture. Super cute. Um, I am a Zamboni mechanic for profession. It's, I'm pretty much the guy that like keeps the machine that keeps ice clean in between periods at like a hockey game or something like that running. Um, it is not very exciting. It's, it's a job. And I put in my two weeks notice a little while ago before this hike, it's time for something new. I'm, uh, trying to do some woodworking turning that into more than a hobby. And so far it's going well. I have so many questions. How does one become a Zamboni mechanic? When we were on trail and you told me that that was your job first, I thought you were kidding. I was like, what do you, what? Like that's an entire full-time profession, which I guess shows how much I know about ice rink maintenance, but how, how did that become? Like, tell me how you got into that. So first of all, I used to love telling people that in front of you because you would laugh every single time. Um, there's a hockey rink a mile down the street from me. The guy that owns it 
lives across the street from me. He was my little league coach. It's my world is very small off trail. So I've done a few random things before that and then started working there part time, uh, part time turned to full time. And I've been there for about four years now. You mentioned that you've done a bunch of other stuff too. You have a really interesting hands-on kind of job career history. Can you just talk a little bit about some of the other things that you've done? Um, I worked retail for a while. Um, then I got into landscaping. Um, I worked in cemeteries primarily for a while. I had my own little business. I had a few accounts that kept me fairly busy, probably a little too busy. Um, and then I've picked up gigs here and there, helping my dad do uh, construction and carpentry and stuff like that. I do uh, some welding as well. So that's always been like a good way to make quick money here and there. Um, so pretty much like manual labor and like a little bit of skilled labor here and there. I mean, I think a lot of it is very skilled. Anyone who follows you on Instagram and sees the beautiful woodworking things that you make, that is like a lot of skill. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. <sighs> the table you just made, the serving tray you just made. I feel like I'm obsessed with all your yeah. things. I mean, you're basically building me a van. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm, I'm into it. I love <laughs> praise. So yeah, it's great. Um, tell me a little bit more about why you decided not to go to college and why you took this path. In high school, I was like an art kid. I spent most of my day in the art wing. Um, I was into photography really big. And I had a substitute teacher who had a, a like bachelor degree in photography. And that never sat well with me that he was a substitute teacher and had the degree that I wanted. Um, so then I applied to schools and got into a bunch of them. And it was pretty much my decision that I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I chose to not do anything because I didn't want to spend the money and get something that I wasn't 100% convinced that I wanted to actually be doing for the rest of my life, or at least for a long time. So it was just easy enough for me to go pick up a job and then once you get used to making money and like not going to school, it was tough for me to go back. So I have no regrets in the decisions I've made, but yeah, it was just easier to keep on working than go back to school at any point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think you have a really interesting skill set too. You're the only one that I know that does the type of things that you do. And ha I mean, I feel like I've come to you with lots of questions and you just, you just know how to do so much stuff that either I was never taught or I never learned, or it's just like an entirely different path. And one that I think is, I don't know, like could be chosen by more people. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things too, like growing up, the way I did like on a farm, I'm the fifth generation to like farm this property is being resourceful with things. And I feel like that was always like something I could fall back on was like learning things as I grew up, how to fix stuff became very applicable in day to day life. And like, I have marketable skills that aren't necessarily acquired through any kind of diploma or higher education. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a couple of people, when I was taking submissions for questions, really wanted to hear more about the woodworking. I guess they follow you on Instagram too. Um, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about how that got started? Anything that you're feeling particularly proud of when it comes to that? Um, so it got started, like my dad has always done like fine finished carpentry. Um, so I've always had some kind of ability in that field just by spending time with him, watching him. Um, 
And then my interests have like always been kind of fleeting. Like I was really into motorcycles for a while. I had six of them at one point. I've started selling them. I was like building ones and stuff like that. Then it just became easier and easier to go towards woodworking. It was cheaper to do than motorcycles or trucks or any of the other interests I've had in the past. So that's just kind of something that I've fallen into. Like I've always had the equipment to do it. I've had like really good mentors for it and stuff. So it was just as my interest like kind of went towards that, it was easy to jump into it head first and not have like a ton of overhead in getting into it. And I've always had people to learn from. Yeah. Do you have any favorite things you've made lately? Um, lately, I'm really happy with the table that I made. There was some white oak that I had laying around. My dad and I cut a tree down and then milled it into boards. And then I bought some metal and welded up a frame for it and made this cute little herringbone top. Um, I'm really, really happy with how that one came out. But like other projects, we built a barn together when I was a freshman in high school for a guy all post and beam. Um, kind of like you see Amish people build them like no nails or metal supports or anything like that. It's all held together with pegs and fancy joints and stuff like that. That's something that's always been, um, pretty high up on my list of accomplishments. I feel you also, as a joke gift that we won't go into the whole story of for a friend of (laughs) mine made a wooden sex toy. Apparently there's a market for wooden sex toys that you and I didn't know about until we started researching it for this joke gift. Yeah, there apparently is. And maybe that's a market that I might be tapping into soon enough. So who knows? Yeah, you you worked really hard on it. Like as much as that was a gift that made them laugh because of an inside joke that we all had, it doesn't mean that that wasn't like excellent craftsmanship. I like to call it functional art. (laughs) That's (laughs) the best. The best is when you told me that you when you were making it and your dad walked in, tell that story. Yeah, so I was on the lathe and he was like, oh, what are you building? And then he walked over and was kind of looking at it. And I was like, oh, I'm building a butt plug for uh, one of Tink's friends. And then I had to go into the whole backstory of like why I was building it or why I was making it. And it's an awkward conversation to have with your dad that you're making sex toys. I don't know. We've just never had that relationship, I guess. Yeah. And yet he still said that you were doing a good job on it. I mean, it did come out really nice, whether (laughs) you're into it or not. It looked good. So your potential future now that you've put your two weeks in is tables or sex toys upon request. Yeah, I'm really not picky in what I do. (laughs) Never have been. Oh, my God. What's something that you think most people wouldn't guess about you, like upon first meeting you? Like what's something that it might surprise people to know about you? I can be very emotional. Um, I'm a very big crier. Like it doesn't have to just be sad or anything like that. I cry when I'm happy. I cry when I'm sad, angry, a lot of different reasons I'll cry. Um, and that's probably not always something that people would guess off of this like larger framed six, two individual. We've just been like conditioned that men don't cry and there's totally nothing wrong with crying. So do it if that's what you need to do. Yeah. You did a lot of good crying on the PCT. I did so much crying on the PCT. I mean, our first bonding moment, um, we were in a little town called Stahican, um, towards the yeah. beginning of the trail, if you're going southbound and our first real, I mean, we had had a couple of other conversations in passing, but our first real conversation was on the porch of the ranger station at like six 30 in the morning in Stahican. And you were telling me some home stuff, some family stuff, some like letting out some feelings. We didn't really know each other. And, uh, there was definitely no. some crying. 
No, the crazy thing is I had met you once. I think we'd talked for like maybe five minutes. And then I talked to you again in Stahican for maybe five minutes and then cried my eyes out to you the following morning for like half an hour. Yeah, but and then we bonded. Ever since. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. That's a good. For, good relationships are formed based on someone crying in a breakdown <laughs> style in the tiny town of Stahican. Yeah, I'm one for one on that. So I have yet to be proved otherwise. <laughs> Tell me the story of how you first got into long distance hiking. Um, so I've always been very outdoorsy. I had never actually gone like hiking, backpacking. I'd always gone car camping or like canoe camping, something like that, where you can bring a fair amount of gear, like coolers with food and stuff like that. And then like we had a family cabin pretty close to the Appalachian Trail. So that was always something that like piqued my interest. I remember as like a little kid picking up hitchhikers with my dad and like giving them rides to town or to the trail, stuff like that. So it's always been something that's like been in the back of my mind. And then I forget how I ended up seeing it, but like I saw pictures of the PCT and was like, I really want to see this stuff. And then got like Yogi's guidebook to it. And one year just like stepped foot on trail trying to through hike and have never looked back. My longest standing tradition in life at this point is going back to the PCT every year, which is a really good tradition to have. This will be what year six. Yeah. Of hiking on the PCT. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah, and to not have finished it is starting to get a little frustrating. <laughs> I mean, in all fairness, I've only tried through hiking twice. I failed in the first 100 miles the first time. Um, I tore my meniscus and had to get off trail and go home. And then this time I just quit because I wasn't feeling it anymore. So one of these years, I'm going to hike every step of the PCT, probably not in one year, but it's at least going to be done. Yeah, well, we did 1,600 miles last year. We're going to do 700 this year, and then we'll still have, what, like 350 left? Maybe we can do that next year. Yeah, chipping away. Chipping away at it. I mean, but that brings up an interesting point. So it's obviously something that you've tried and failed at multiple times. How do you feel about that? Um, So the first time was, like, very bitter. You go home or, like, you get out on trail having told all the people in your life, like, I'm going to be gone for, like, five months living out of a backpack, all this super romantic sounding stuff. And then to be home like a week and a half later sucks like big time. And then having to explain to all these people why you're home and have it sting like every single time sucks hard. So after that, I've gotten very good at keeping my expectations low, which might sound like not awesome, but it is a reality in long distance hiking that you're never going to finish or like you might not finish that hike things happen beyond your power all the time or just being out so long, you find that it isn't for you. And I've gotten very good at uh, managing my expectations and not having my heart set on anything too much because it's just been an, I know things can happen beyond my power and I'm very good at rolling with the punches at this point. Yeah, I'd say that's true. So I obviously have my own, you know, reasons for quitting the trail last year. I can also put a link to, I did an episode of the She Explores podcast that was essentially all about quitting. Um, I can put that up there too. But for you, if you had to sum it up, why did you quit last year? I was just super burnt out. Um, You know, I remember, you know, I had an awesome time through Washington and Oregon Um, Northern California started to kind of burn at me a little bit. And I remember we had one day where we're trying to get miles in to get to town on time. And we came to this like gorgeous overlook, like this big cliff. And 
we like couldn't sit and hang out and just enjoy it because we had like we were under a time crunch and honestly like i don't want to hike like that anymore to be honest i want to be able to enjoy myself and if i want to like take a break somewhere just take a break and not be like well you know we need to make it by to this place by a certain time or we might get snowed out or get stranded like i'm just kind of over that kind of hiking Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and we can talk about that a little later of, you know, things that we want to do differently for this hike. Um, but specifically the hike from last year, I thought it might be fun, um, to quick talk about trail names. So obviously yep. it's gent and, or like short for gentleman and tink short for Tinkerbell. Um, how did you get your trail name? Um, there was a guy named Baram. He was from uh, South Korea and I met him on, I actually met him at the Canadian border. I showed up, there was a gang of guys there. We hung out, ate lunch together, and then we all hiked out together and camped that night. In the morning, I was still clean shaven. I had this nice blue button-up collared shirt. And he said that I looked like a Wall Street type and said that the name Gentleman suited me really well. And I walked out of camp that morning, and I actually think you were the first person I saw once I got that trail name. And that was it ever since. And then like I tend to carry myself in a fairly pleasant manner and try to be even keeled around people and gentlemen just kind of stuck and then got shortened to gent because gentlemen's kind of a mouthful and gent it is. Yeah. And all of our trail names got shortened over time. Um, yeah. you are or just changed altogether. Yeah. Or just changed altogether. Yeah. You are very pleasant to people. I remember the morning it was you and me and shivers and we were hiking into Snoqualmie pass, I think to resupply. Yeah. And she and I were starving and wanted pancakes so badly, wanted breakfast so badly. And basically, we're like making a beeline of this like seven mile, like as fast as we could to get to town. And we kept crossing a lot of people that were going the other way because it was, I guess, like we were close enough to a popular trailhead. It was like a big day hiking spot. I think it was on a weekend. Um, And we just kept passing all these people who wanted to stop and talk to us and, oh, like, what hike you guys on? What are you doing? And Shivers and I had no, like, we had no time for, we didn't want to interact with anyone. We didn't want to be nice to anyone. Like, all we wanted to do was get our pancakes cakes and so we would charge ahead and basically like leave you to talk to, to the people and be nice Pretty to them much. yeah that morning consisted of a lot of me talking to strangers then jogging to catch up to you guys after i was done being pleasant to people yeah well she and i are much shorter than you so your long legs can make up that yeah. difference you can be polite to strangers and then jog to catch up with us i'm fine with that all right yeah fair <laughs> enough so someone also asked about um if we use trail names off trail or not uh which i thought was funny i mean you and i definitely do yeah. Yeah. Like you were forever tink to me. I mean, right. I don't think there's going to be any situation. Like I will refer to you as Tom to other people sometimes, especially if they're people that aren't involved in trail things, but I don't think I'll ever call you that. Even hearing it out of your mouth right now. Like, I don't think you've ever referred to me as Tom, like in front of me. And it just felt odd. <laughs> You're like, I don't like it. That's not my name. No, I don't like it at all. Oh, that's amazing. What's one of your favorite memories from the three months you spent on trail last year? Oh, my favorite or one of them anyway, it's tough to like pick and choose just one. But, um, when we decided to flip down to Kennedy Meadows, our like crazy hitching story was like, it's a once in a lifetime story. I feel like we were at this random little road in the middle of nowhere after this like resort town had closed. That was the only thing that this road led to. And one guy was going in the right direction. I pretty much left out in front of this truck in the street I was like, hey, we're trying to get to town. Any chance you give us a ride? He was like, I've got one seat. I'm sorry. And I was like, 
will fit. And I like threw my stuff in the back. I yelled at you that we got a ride. Um, you sat on my lap until we got into town. Then we yeah, that was not safe at all, by the way. I was sitting ha- no. like half on your leg, half on the door of this man's car. I had also just gotten my period and didn't really like know it beforehand. And all I'm doing sitting there was like, please don't bleed on his lap in this truck. Please don't bleed on his lap in yeah. this truck. I feel I would have been gentlemanly about it. I mean, sure. At that point, we were like so disgusting and like take turns waiting for each other to go dig holes and poop in them. So, I mean, that's what friendship is made of. Exactly. Um, So then we got to Quincy. We stopped at the grocery store, which is where the guy was going. He wouldn't take any money from me. We got some snacks. I believe you got some tampons or something. And then (laughs) I did. That's true. Then we hit the road again and stuck our thumbs out. Some woman and I think her roommate picked us up. Um, We told her we were trying to get to Sierra City. She had no idea where that was. She was like, I just had to run one errand and then I can give you guys a ride. So she had to stop at her mom's house and it was like a five minute drive and then continued to drive us an hour out into the middle of nowhere, drop us off and then drive back to her house an hour in the opposite direction. Yeah, that entire adventure was basically a series of good luck hitchhiking situations. Pe- pe- yeah. Us thinking we were never going to get rides and then people giving us rides to the middle of nowhere. Yeah, that was yep. that was a very fun adventure. And um, then from there, we got a three-hour ride to South Lake Tahoe. And then from there, we got a seven-hour ride all the way to Kennedy Meadows from Monica, who is awesome. Yes, we did. Shout out to Monica. Thank you for driving us. Yeah, thank you. On the hike last year, what was easier than you anticipated and what was harder than you anticipated? Um, the easier one is actually like a tough one for me. I like I had like 700 miles of backpacking experience before I came out. So I was like fairly well versed in the difficulties of trail. So I kind of knew things were difficult. I think maybe it was like just falling in with a group of people. I had never really been on trail long enough to get in with a group. And it always just kind of like drifted through, which I was liking less and less as I was going on. And then just like getting in with this group of awesome people was really good. And just opening myself up to that experience was easier than I had thought based on like my off trail life. I'm pretty, um, pretty introverted. So I don't put myself out a whole lot. Something that was more difficult than I expected was just the day in, day out grind of like whether you wanted to hike or not, you had to. Like there was no, if you wanted a day off, it was one of those like, well, too bad. Like if you take a day off here, you're not going to have enough food to get to town kind of stuff. Like you had to make the miles pretty much no matter what. And that proved harder and harder to me over time. Yeah. I mean, doing a hike like that, that has such a, that is such a long trail and has such a tight weather window definitely puts you in that position. Yeah. Yeah. Overall, what do you love the most about long distance hiking? Honestly, the people, um, it's very easy to find people that you like and get along with. And people come from all different backgrounds, which is something I really enjoy. Like just this summer, like Shivers is a doctor. King worked for Greenpeace and does like all this incredible environmental work. You host a podcast. I'm a mechanic, like just a lot of different backgrounds. And it's a really good way. It's like a really good equalizer being on trail. And it doesn't matter what you do off trail. You're out here doing this thing now. And that's what's important. Yeah. So I guess this is a good time to shift a little bit into taking um, some of the topics and questions and starting to dig into them that people wanted to hear more about. Um, 
some of it will be like, you know, verbatim specific questions we were asked. And some of it, you know, I tried to put everything together so that we're covering as many topics as possible. But the first thing that we got um, some questions about, and I think some of this is more directed at me. Some of it is stuff that we can both talk about. Um, but there were a bunch of questions about sleep, um, especially given that I have had such a history of challenges with sleeping in the backcountry. Um, so I guess I can talk about that a little bit. I am not a great sleeper in general. I've had, you know, insomnia problems on and off in different phases of my life for, you know, the conditions have to be pretty perfect in order for me to sleep well. And when I first started with long distance hiking, unlike you, I did not grow up doing outdoorsy things. I only ever lived in really big cities. I never went hiking. I had never gone camping a night in my life until I started getting into this type of thing. And so it was really new for me. And my first two long hikes, I was alone. So I think a lot of the not sleeping for me was fear, you know, oh my God, something's going to try to eat my face in the night, right? Like that type of thing. You hear a sound, some sticks break, you hear an animal, right? And then you're up the rest of the night feeling really fearful. That was my experience at least. Um, so I think it was partially that, and then partially, you know, as comfortable as you can be on long distance backpacking, like even if you have really comfortable gear, it's still for me significantly less comfortable than sleeping inside and sleeping in a bed. Yeah. So I think it was kind of those factors together overall on this like last hike specifically, I definitely slept more. I mean, when I, so my first hike, I did the Oregon section of the BCT, which was 460 miles. And then the next year I did the Arizona trail, which was 800 miles. And I basically didn't sleep on those hikes. I mean, a little bit, but not really, but they were short enough. The first one was a little less than a month. And the second one was about six weeks that the hikes were short enough that I would sleep really well when I was in town for resupply. And that would kind of get me through the next, you know, three to five day section of not sleeping. And so going into hiking the PCT last year, it was always on my mind of like, huh, I don't really know what's going to have, what's going to happen after the six week mark. Is this going to be a thing where like it becomes impossible, right. To keep doing this because I feel so tired. And so that was like, from the beginning, I thought potentially if I wasn't able to do the whole hike, that that would be why. And I was correct in that I slept more on this hike than I had on previous hikes, but just the cumulative sleep deprivation over three months, like got to the point where I felt like I was like really losing my mind on it, like literally in terms of how I was like so tired, so sleep deprived. Um, like, I mean, obviously you were there for all of it, like feeling just really yeah. horrible. I mean, I didn't realize until I started thinking back that it wasn't until Chester, which was like basically the halfway point. That was the first time that I slept for a full eight hours. And, you know, there's some different factors in there that we can talk about in terms of like what I'm doing differently this year. But I know some folks had said that sleeping in the backcountry was definitely one of their fears. And I mean, that's relatable. I know some folks who sleep amazing on trail. And, you know, I know other people like me who don't. It's one of those things that I think you kind of don't know until you try. And also it does get better over time, I think. Yeah, I mean, I don't have any issues sleeping outdoors. Um, usually the first like couple nights on a hike, I don't sleep well just because sleeping on like this tiny little inflatable mattress on the ground takes some getting used to. But for the most part, like I, my head hits my pillow and I'm pretty good at just falling asleep. Yeah. I, I think probably a little too good. No, it's <laughs> right. Like when you slept through when there was a bear in our campsite. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Don't worry. I dealt with it. I was awake. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. <laughs> well, you dealt with a mountain lion, so that's fine. We're even. <laughs> um, yeah. I think for me, 
like thinking through what I'm going to try to do differently this year. Cause I mean, the honest answer is that I don't think I'm ever going to sleep amazing on trail. I'm open to it happening. That would be amazing. You know, if it did, but I don't think that it will. I made a couple of specific changes when we went to the Sierras, I wound up getting a warmer sleeping bag and also a stove. I had been cold soaking my meals before that, which we can talk about, you know, in the food section of this, but you know, having warm meals, having a warmer sleeping bag. I think that that's going to help just in terms of comfort level, um, we're going to be doing lower mileage days overall. That was something else for me. I noticed when we a couple of the couple of times that we did lower mileage that I slept better. And I think it was interesting because it's almost counterintuitive. I used to think like, oh, once I'm so exhausted, then that will like the exhaustion will win out over the anxiety, and then I'll sleep, which you know was sort of the only way that I slept on the first couple hikes. But I started to find the deeper that we got into our hike last year that when we did those really big mile days, like I was, I mean, you're overtrained, you're overexercising. And I would get to camp and be like really keyed up and my body had a hard time settling down. And when we would get there in the dark and set up camp and try to eat dinner really fast and then like, oh, lay down, go to sleep. Like it wasn't enough transition time for me as opposed to when we had like lower mileage days and we got into camp earlier and it was more restful and we could, you know, we still had daylight and, you know, we would listen to an audiobook or do something like that and really wind down. Um, I think that, you know, doing lower mileage days is going to help me for sure. Yeah, I think it will too, because I think you're definitely right. And the bigger the day was, the less time you do have to wind down at camp. And it just isn't so easy to lay your stuff out, shovel food into your face and just pass out. Yeah. The other the other thing I think, you know, for, for someone who might be potentially worried about this, I, at the beginning of this last hike, I expected not to sleep, right? And so because I expected it, I didn't get stressed out when it happened. Whereas previously, I'd be like, oh my God, I didn't sleep last night. This is going to happen. I'm going to get too worn down and I'm going to get sick. And like, it's easy to kind of fall down an anxiety spiral about that. And then, you know, it would get to be nighttime and I would feel, oh my God, am I going to sleep tonight, right? And I would have a lot of anxiety around it. And the thing that was helpful this time around was, I just expected that that was going to be the case. And so I wasn't that bothered by it initially, you know, when that's what was happening. So I think, you know, kind of easing up on the expectations a little bit. And then the other big thing that I'm going to be doing differently this year, it was so great to meet you guys and hike with you guys. And it was my first experience of hiking with other people and having a trail family. And, you know, there's so many good things about that, which we can talk about. Um, but one of the things that I didn't realize really until it was too late is, you know, we would all go into town together and, you know, we would have four or five people in a hotel room, which was great in terms of cutting down on costs because you're splitting it with more people. And obviously it was fun because I love you guys and it was great to all be together. But what it meant was that, you know, there's lots of people, people want to go to sleep at different times. You're sharing a bed with someone else which in general does not work well for me in any context. And so even in towns, I wasn't sleeping well. And that was really the difference between this hike and previous hikes is that previous hikes, sure, I wasn't sleeping on trail, but then I would get into town and I would be alone and I would get a hotel room or whatever and I would sleep for like 10 hours, right? And that would really help. So this time around one of my hard boundaries, which obviously comes with some, you know, budgetary consequences. Like I have to have more money saved for this is, you know, I will share a hotel room, you know, or a motel room with one other person and I am having my own bed and everyone that we're hiking with knows that that's the case. Right. And so it felt a little bit, I don't know, selfish or tough to sort of advocate for myself in that way. But I feel like that is also going to give me a better chance at just overall being more well-rested. Yeah, I mean, if it feels selfish, I understand that. But at the same time, like you need to do what's best for you, regardless of like you're not offending anyone in saying that. Like it's just a fact that you sleep better in your own bed. So that 
is what you need for this hike to be successful. That's what needs to be done. Yeah, I mean, and this brings up something else that you and I talked about a lot, especially towards the end of the hike of, you know, the sort of push really hard dirt bag culture that exists in trail life and in through hiking. And obviously there's plenty of different types of hikers. And so I don't want to, you know, paint with too broad of a brush, but sort of the overarching narrative is like, you know, do it as inexpensively as possible, pack as many people into hotel room, like only eat ramen, like only shower like once a month or, I mean, that's an exaggeration, but sort of, right. And I think that I idealize that a little bit, you know, I'm going to hike these huge mile days and, you know, not really have any needs and just like fall asleep anywhere. And it was definitely a learning experience to realize like, actually that style of hiking doesn't work for me. And so this hike is going to be the first time that I'm like purposely doing lower mileage. You know, I do need to have my own bed in town. Like I do want to shower more. I do want to take good care of my gear, right? Some of the things that felt like uncool (laughs) sort of, um, I don't know if there's anything on that topic that you want to talk about. Yeah. Um, that is something that like we started to talk about a lot more towards the end of our hike of like the elitist mentality. Some people tend to have of like if your pack's not under such and such a weight, you're doing it wrong. Or if you're spending a night in a hotel in every town, you're doing it wrong. That kind of stuff. Um, as cliche as it is like hike your own hike, what works for you may not work for others. And you need to just listen to yourself and do what you need to do in order to have a fun hike, have a successful hike, whatever you might be looking for. Yeah. I mean, and this idea of like what makes a quote real hiker, right? And you don't have to do a long trail. You don't have to do an entire trail. Day hiking is awesome. Like shorter trips are awesome, right? I I just think that there's a a narrative around that it has to be this super hardcore thing. Otherwise it like doesn't count. I mean, not, I don't know who's counting. I don't know like really even what I mean by that, but I've talked to enough other, other people about this, that it's not just you and I that feel that way. Like this is definitely the overarching narrative. Yeah. Um, but again, like it's, always easier said than done to just like brush off what other people say and do what you need to do. But in this case, what you need to do is like spend more nights in hotel rooms in your own bed. And that's what's going to happen because that's how it's going to be a more enjoyable hike for you. Or at least that's what we think it will be. So yeah, I also think there's something from what you're saying about like you don't know what works for you until you try stuff. Right. And so I think, you know, one of the things that you had expressed that you learned, you know, you went into it thinking, you know, I'm really tough and I can, I'm a fast hiker and I can hike these huge mileage days. And for you to learn that you actually don't like doing that, right? I think some of this is like, it's just an experimentation process. You learn what you like and don't like and what works for you and doesn't work for you in every regard, whether it's the style of hiking or if you're hiking alone or with other people or what you're eating or your gear, right? Like someone can give you the best possible advice and you can do as much research as you can. And still the only way you figure it out is by doing it. Yeah, totally. And like before getting on the PCT this year, I had always been one to do like more than 20 miles pretty much every single day. And, you know, I was a guy in my young twenties and should be able to do big mileage. I had a light pack, all this stuff that it turns out I didn't actually enjoy doing it that way. And once I was able to slow down and spend time with people, that's when I found out, Oh, I love this aspect of hiking, not just seeing how many miles I can do. That was not so enjoyable once I found out what I liked. Remember the day we didn't leave camp until 10 a.m. and only hiked 12 miles and it was the best day ever? I also remember that day saying like, I think we were going to do more miles originally. And I was like, oh, we can definitely do like 14 miles by six o'clock or something. And we ended up being shorter that day or something like that, I thought. 
me because we didn't leave camp until 10 and then we took like a two or three hour lunch break and it was amazing yeah we had a dance party before we left camp and i remember we showed each other pictures from our off-trail life and stuff that was yeah this is what i look like was, when i'm clean yeah 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 <laughs> That was a fun morning. Yeah, it was. Uh, let's talk about money a little bit. How do you afford to do this, to take time off, to, you know, because obviously, especially you've been doing this for the last five years. Um, I've been very fortunate over the past few years. Um, I've always been able to take off more time than most people are able to afford at work, and they've always welcomed me back. Um, so I've been very fortunate in that aspect. And you know, I've lived at home with my dad. My costs are super low. I've always driven older vehicles. And there was like a good stretch of time that I was working two full-time jobs, um, a full-time job and a part-time job. So I'm very used to just working, working, working. There was one point I had two full-time jobs and had my own landscaping business on the side <laughs> on my lunch breaks from the landscaping job I had. I would go and cut grass for my own business and then leave my landscaping job at four and go and drive a Zamboni until about midnight. I got burnt out on that pretty quick, but it's always, I have a, I can be very good at working when I have to. And that's a lot of how I've been able to afford it and just having very low overhead. Yeah. And making choices that, I mean, this is, seems like always what you have wanted is to be able to take time off like this. And so, you know, the choices that you have made, I've, I, there's obviously like positives and negatives to any choice. Right. And so this, the choices you've made support you doing this kind of thing. Yeah. And, uh, one of the things that I've always held was like, I don't want to work, so I'll do whatever I have to, to make that happen. And if it means working a lot in a short time frame, I can do that if it means not working a lot later down the road and being able to like keep goals in mind has been something that I've had in my work ethic for a long time. Yeah. Something that was really interesting for me and talking to you and spending so much time with you this summer, obviously we have really different career histories, education histories, right? Stuff like that. And, you know, it was always really clear to me that you have a lot of integrity and that you're a really hard worker and that you value doing a good job at the things that you do. And also that work is not the center of your life. It's not like you have this super ambitious career track that you've been on for forever, right? That like, there's other things that you value more than work. And I, I don't think that it's, I, I think both choices are fine, right? Like if people, if work is, you know, something that someone's really fired up about, awesome. But I found it really refreshing for you to be like, yeah, I'll do like sort of a no job is beneath me. I'll do whatever for money and then use that money to go do other things. And I, I just maybe sort of in the line of work that I am or being more in sort of the follow your passion space, right? That I, you just don't hear that a lot. And I found that really refreshing. Yeah. Um, a lot of people are conditioned that like you get out of high school, you go to college, you get a degree and then you get a career and you stick with that for a long time. And it was just never part of my plan. And I was much happier just kind of floating around and doing what I had to do to find enjoyment. So like working whatever jobs I had to, to take however long I wanted off and just live. So for me, answering the same question, I think that's, you know, as we go through some of these topics, we can kind of switch back and forth. And I'm sure we won't take this much time on every topic, but I think that money is a good and important one. Um, for me, I'm self-employed. Um, so I'm able to schedule work sort of around trips. That was easier on the four to six week trips than it was last year. Um, that was actually something else that I learned last year was that was too long for me to be away from work. It definitely, I felt like some things 
suffered, um, being gone for that long. And also, you know, as you know, I was still working from trail somewhat, um, you know, we would get into town and I would go to the library for some hours and, you know, do stuff. And it was more maintenance things. It's not like I was recording seasons of the show, you know, from there, but in terms of bonus content for Patreon and all that stuff, like that was all still happening, which actually wound up, even though it was kind of stressful at times, wound up being really nice because as much as I love long distance hiking, being out that long, I felt that creatively and intellectually and just mentally, I wasn't that stimulated. So it was actually nice to have some like work projects and stuff to do. So that obviously helped me, but previous hikes, like I'm in a period of transition right now, having just, you know, uncoupled from my partner and, you know, previous hikes all had the financial privilege for me of having a partner who was at home, who earns more than me and having, you know, a dual income, you know, no kids lifestyle in that regard. So like, that was a huge part of it. I don't know what would have happened. Like if I would have gotten into this in the same way otherwise. Um, For this year's hike, obviously that's not the case, but I am paying for this year's hike out of savings. So we can talk about specific budget stuff next because I think that's always interesting too. But um, I basically set aside a chunk of money that I took out of my savings that you know, otherwise could have gone toward long-term savings and I'm choosing choosing to use it this way instead. So that is how I am affording this hike, which I know you're doing the same thing. Yeah. Yep. So, um, and that's an interesting thing too, with the budget, I'm always like, I love transparency around money and I'm happy to post, uh, like a detailed budget breakdown once the hike is over. If that's something that people would be interested in. Um, I haven't done that for past hikes just because I didn't track it as care- as carefully, which obviously is also a privilege, um, of not really having to pay as much attention to it. Um, I am paying attention to it this year. Uh, the only thing that I hesitate sometimes with financial stuff is that, you know, once you put a number out there, people think like that's the number that it takes. And some people spend a lot more than that. And some people spend a lot less than that. I think that the budget that I have set aside for this hike is larger than hopefully it will be. So I have $2,500 that I have set aside for a 700 mile six week hike. And I know people that did, you know, entire long trails, the PCT to AT, you know, for four or five months on like four to $6,000, right? So I think this is definitely a larger budget. But that's because of what we talked about before of having higher expenses in town. You know, we're stopping, I think we're doing 10 resupply stops, um, trying not to have to carry more than four or five days of food at once, doing lower mileage, doing more frequent resupply stops, and that I want to have like a hotel bed in every single town. You know, if someone wasn't doing that, their budget would go down significantly. Oh, yeah. Cause like we had hiked with people or met people on trail that in the Sierras had spent like two nights in hotel rooms of their entire time on trail from Washington to central California. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. it's a very, very wide sliding scale. Yeah. So for me, when I kind of break down that $2,500 budget, um, a couple hundred dollars of it is for like supplemental or replacement gear. One of the nice things about doing this year after year is that your big gear purchases are taken care of. I got a new life proof case for my iPhone because I got a different phone this year. So it's not the same size as my old case. I wound up getting a new bra. Um, I use the, I think it's called the barely bra. It's made by Patagonia. Um, I could put a link in the show notes, but it, I wore it on every single mile of every hike that I have done. So that's over 2,800 miles. So I think I got my worth out of that bra. It's kind of like deteriorated a little yeah. bit. So new $50 bra this year. Um, and then same thing, my, I'm doing all mailed resupplies. We'll talk about, you know, food soon, but I had a lot of leftover food from last year because I had pre-bought all of my food and then wound up quitting, you know, a month or a month and a half early. So luckily I have most of that food is still good. So I think I'll probably wind up spending like three or $400 on supplemental food. Um, our flight down to San Diego to start the hike, I think was like one eighteen. Um, we're getting a motel in San Diego that we're splitting for the first night, which is like 60 bucks each. Um, the shipping, the resupply boxes will probably be about $200. Um, 
you know, for the flat rate shipping boxes, I'm having a friend do that. And then obviously like the in-town lodging, I think we estimated like five or $600 a person if we're splitting rooms. So that's a huge chunk of it. And same thing, like how much money you actually spend in town is really variable too, right? Like doing laundry, whether or not you're eating out, um, you know, gas money for trail angels and hitchhiking, you know, basically what you choose to do in town. I think we estimated it as like $70, like per person per town stop for 10 stops. So that's 700 bucks. But again, you can spend a lot less, you could spend a lot more, you know, and then a motel for a few nights once we get off trail and a flight home, probably be like, I don't know, 300 bucks. And that's like 2,500 right there. Yeah. Anything about that that you want to say? No, um, I think we covered that pretty well. All right. Let's talk about hygiene and being dirty. There were lots of good questions about this too. Um, Someone asked, did you find it mentally tough being unwashed and in grubby clothes all the time and just never really feeling clean? I dealt with that actually pretty well up until things started getting cold. Uh, The worst thing in the morning was putting on a greasy, dirty, cold shirt. Um, It was just, it felt a lot more cold in the morning putting on something that was like soaked in your own filth um (laughs) for lack of a better word it was tough like having long stretches just because like being out in the woods for like eight days is difficult mentally physically all of that but after a certain point nothing feels as good as a hot shower you know i had one shirt one pair of underwear one short one pair of shorts two pairs of socks and that was i had a sleep shirt too and that was pretty much it i dealt with being dirty pretty well and it's like we were lucky enough there was water spots that you can like kind of douse yourself down a little bit but for the most part I was okay with being dirty for long amounts of time yeah this falls under the category of things that I thought was going to be something that really bothered me before I started this and then surprisingly like wound up feeling really easy you know like I because I remember again like being a total beginner being pretty used to showering all the time and being clean, right. And not being in nature and all of that kind of stuff. Like I really predicted that this was going to like drive me wild, you know, not being this dirty. And, um, I thought the dirt factor was just going to be one of the harder parts of adjusting to long distance hiking for me. And, you know, I feel like it's shocking how quickly you acclimate to it. Um, or at least that's how it was for me. I will say, I would notice, you know, on longer stretches, I don't know why, but it was always like the morning of day five, I was like, okay, I don't want to put these clothes on. Like, this is pretty gross. <laughs> like there's something about the morning of day five being out there where you're like, yeah, I need to wash these things. Like I feel like really pretty disgusting. Um, and then, like you said, if clothes are still wet in the morning, right? Like if we hiked late later into the night, like got to camp later. And so like the sun's already gone down. It's already basically like too cold for you to lay out your sweaty clothes and have them dry in the sun. Then it's cold overnight and they're not going to dry. So then you're putting on like still like sweaty, wet, cold clothes in the morning. Like, that doesn't, yeah. To your point, that does not feel great. Yeah. I think like one of the hardest parts, like going southbound was in Washington, our feet would be wet pretty much from the time we left town to the time we got back into town. Um, And like putting on wet socks in the morning and then putting wet shoes on top of that was less than comfortable. Especially when they would like freeze in the night. Yeah. And then like eventually they would dry out and they'd be like standing up in the corner of your tent with a mind of their own. Yeah. Um, But yeah. Yeah. For the most part, I was good at being dirty. Yeah, me too. I feel like I'm good at it too. I mean, the like smell of the clothes gets to me after a while where I'm like, this shirt smells like such absolute trash that you know, no amount of washing will ever make it smell good again. Um, but you know, that's just one of those things that you kind of deal with. Yeah. 
Um, hygiene logistics. Um, I have a toothbrush and toothpaste on trail. I have hand sanitizer and I have wet wipes, but the wet wipes are more like let's like clean face and crotch basically like that. It wasn't like a whole body wet wipe situation. There were definitely some times where I tried to wipe down my legs and like would, I mean, you guys used to make fun of me because they would, my legs would wind up being like streaked in like patterns of dirt because it was just too much so dirt filthy. and I would give up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what about you? Hygiene logistics? Yeah, pretty much the same, like wet wipes, hand sanitizer, um, toilet paper, and like I would carry a uh, pack towel. It's like a microfiber towel or uh, like a chamois, and it was easy enough to like dunk it in water somewhere and like wash my face with it, or if we went swimming, I was at least able to dry off, Um, but it's a pretty bare bones hygiene thing. Yeah, and then just, you know, showering with shampoo and soap as available in towns, you know, whenever possible. Yeah. Um, You know, like you said, some swimming, jumping into certain bodies of water, obviously following leave no trace principles, like not doing that in scarce water areas or, you know, water sources that are smaller and that type of stuff. Um, and then let's talk pooping in the woods. Let's talk about it. I'm into it. (laughs) Um, tell us your pooping in the woods routine. What are the things that you have with you? Talk about it. Um, so I started carrying a poop trowel, um, which is basically just like a little lightweight shovel. Yeah. And, um, when we went through Bend, actually, I picked that up. Um, makes it easier to dig a hole. Um, you poop in said hole and then carry out your toilet paper for uh, to leave no trace. And that's pretty much it. Like when you got to go, you got to go. Drop your pack at the side of the trail. Scurry off into the woods and hope that you are out of sight of any potential hikers and fill in a hole. Yeah, this was something else. This, like the being dirty and the pooping in the woods were things going into like long distance taking as a beginner that again, like I thought were just going to be so horrible. And again, you acclimate really quick, right? You know, you have your little shovel, you dig the hole, um, leave no trace principles are, you know, you're digging a cat hole that's like six to eight inches deep, at least 200 feet from water, you know, campsites, trails, that kind of thing. And then you're covering it when you finish, pack out the toilet paper. That was something else that I was like, oh my God, you carry dirty toilet paper, but it really winds up not being a big deal, right? Like you have like a bag that you put it in and you use hand sanitizer afterwards. Like anything else, it becomes routine pretty quickly. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not like my favorite thing, like having a toilet and having indoor plumbing is lovely, but you know, it's, it is what it is basically. Yeah, um, I also found that I was better at using indoor plumbing than outdoor non-plumbing. For some reason, I would get on trail and things would kind of lock up a little bit for me. And then I would get to town and hear running water and that would trigger something in me. And I was able to use a toilet profusely in town. Yeah, and I'm the opposite. (laughs) I pooped so much on trail and then we would get into town and I'd be like, there's a toilet right there, body. Like, what are you doing? Just go. And then could not Yeah. Uh, all of our many poop-related problems. Remember, wasn't it like three days that you didn't poop on trail? Yeah, it was. That's and too that was long, dude. Great. But then also, like, I got into town once, and I think I pooped like ten times. I mean, like, like, yeah, like no exaggeration. Span. I think it was ten times. Yeah. Yeah, it was a lot. Um, super bonding experience. Also, yeah. <laughs> that was, I know, but I mean, oh, like, and so weird. I say that jokingly, but you know, something that I've thought about a lot is, you know 
developing really close relationships with people that you hike with on trail, I think a lot of that has to do with how human the experience is, right? Like you only have your one outfit. You're all going through the same struggles. You all hiked up the same, like really, you know, hard, hot climb. You know, we all know what it's like to be cold, to be running out of food, to be sick of your food, to feel lonely, to just be like not having it in that moment and to have to, you know, just all of the different things that make up this life. And like, it's all very like basic human stuff, like tired, hungry, thirsty, need to poop, don't feel good. This hurts. Right. And like you bond by sharing those things. And I mean, I don't know, like there's, I'm trying to think of like any other friendship or any other relationship in my life where like from the beginning it was like, okay, like I'm going to go, I'm going to go poop. Like you wait here for me like that. What? It's so weird. It's super weird. And like one of the biggest bonding and laughing experiences I think we had on trail was like our first night all camping together as the Royal family. And you said that your butt was chafing and I lent you my Vagisil and we all laughed about it. Yeah. And I had never had butt chafe until then. And spoiler alert, folks, it's so painful. It's exactly what it sounds like. And apparently putting Vagisil on it helps, which I didn't know, but Gent had a tube of Vagisil. Yeah, it was our first night camping together and my butt was on fire and you were like, okay, here you go. And I like had to go into my tent and like do weird butt stuff. And like, you guys were all laughing at me from outside the tent. And like, I guess we're going to be besties now. (laughs) Yeah. That's exactly how it happened. That's how it went down. Yeah. And then the best was, you know, uh, how people say that women's menstrual cycles sync up. Our poop schedules synced up sometimes where we'd be like walking down trail. It's like, okay, you go this way. I'll go this way. We'll meet back here. (laughs) I mean, a lot of the time that ended up happening. It was pretty weird, to be honest. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, the pooping on trail. It's sometimes it's not ideal. Sometimes you're in a place where it's really hard to dig a hole. Sometimes you have to go so badly that you do what we call digging the hole after, which is exactly yep. also what it sounds like. Um, yeah, it's it's a blast. <laughs> it's, it is something. And I could not be more excited to do it again. I know, right? Yeah, we're excited about weird stuff. I also got some questions under this um, umbrella topic about um, getting your period on trail. For me personally, I use tampons, the kind that don't have an applicator, and then I just pack those out the same way that I pack out toilet paper. Um, My period tends to be relatively short, um, particularly on trail, and so I don't even have to have that many tampons with me. I know lots of other um, folks prefer like diva cups, menstrual cups. I still have not used one of those. I've heard some people love them on trail. I've heard some people don't love them as much when they don't have access to like water sources to be able to like wash their hands more, like getting kind of like blood under their nails, that type of thing. I think, again, it's like a personal preference, Um, but yeah, that's, again, one of those things that I thought was going to be really tough and hasn't been. It's actually been surprising for me. Um, I have some rough menstrual cycle symptoms in general. I have endometriosis. I tend to be really crampy and have a lot of not great, uh, I don't know, like symptoms, side effects, mental health wise, just like kind of feeling like garbage from like ovulation to bleeding in general. And mostly all of those symptoms go away when I'm on trail, which, um, has been incredible. I'll still get like a couple days of cramping, but I think just the amount of exercise that you're doing, um, or something about the lifestyle, I don't really know exactly what it is, but that's one of the like welcome joyful things for me is that my period is a lot less of a problem on trail than it is off trail. Yeah, I have nothing to say or add on this subject. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really, you don't want to do that. Good, I'm glad. No, 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 no mansplaining of menstruation from you. Good. <laughs> no, I have zero experience when it comes to that. So, well, let's talk I'll about mental health. Shot. 
because that is something that you do have experience with. Um, yeah. We got a question. How do you manage mental health while on trail? Is that something that you have struggled with? Mental health has usually never been better than it is on trail for me. Same. Um, I've struggled with depression in the past. I've struggled with uh, some bouts of insomnia. And it's one of those things like exercising all day and being in the sun all day does really great things for your body and being surrounded by good people and positivity is a really great thing for mental health. And I mean, I can't say for everyone that that's the case, but for me, that's, it's always been very, very good. And even when I've had bad days on trail, um, I don't think I've ever had like a downward spiral or anything like that, where it's developed into anything more than just a bad day or bad one or two days. Yeah. One of the most welcome surprises for me about long distance hiking has been how mentally well I am on trail. I don't know if it's the simplicity, less stress, less screen time. Like you said, a lot of sunshine, you know, endorphins. I don't know. I'm sure it's a combination of a lot of things, but I have not had a depressive episode on trail. I haven't had, you know, any issues with my mood disorder on trail. So yeah, maybe it's a coincidence, right? That you and I both feel that way. Maybe it's not. I'm obviously can't, you know, I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on the internet, so I can't answer any of that. But I, that has been a really nice surprise for me. So if there's anyone listening who, you know, that hasn't been their experience and they do have other like tips and stuff for dealing with that, um, like definitely feel free to give a shout out. I think that's always an interesting topic. I mean, to be honest, if I did have struggles on trail, I feel like it would managing it would be similar to how I manage it off trail, right? Like you figure out what works for you to the best of your ability to care for yourself. And then you do those things. Um, I will say though, while I haven't had, you know, particular mental health struggles, there definitely has been like anxiety fear cycles about trail related things. And this was another question kind of about like wild animals and just like fear and kind of going through those, you know, spirals in your own brain. And that was a huge part of my sleeplessness on my solo hikes that again, like being afraid that something was going to eat my face in the night. But I think like anything else, you build comfort over time. Like you get more comfortable doing the thing by doing the thing. And the specific question about, you know, wild animals and, or, you know, bears, mountain lions, whatever on trail, I feel like for me, what has worked is to learn about the animals in the area while you'll be hiking, learn about their typical behaviors, about the recommended precautions, right? Like we had bear cans in the Sierras, for example, learn what to do in an encounter with the specific animals that you're afraid of. All of this information is like widely <laughs> available and Googleable. Um, and like outside of that, I feel like for me, what has helped and it's taken time, but is to just remind myself over and over that like something bad is either going to happen or it's not, which I don't know that that's comforting, but it's the same thing. Like I'm either going to get in a car accident or I'm not right. Like it's, yeah, doesn't mean that I don't drive anywhere. And I think like the, the unfamiliar nature of, you know, bear encounters makes it, you know, scarier in your head. But for the most part, these animals are way more scared of you, right. Than like you are of them. And the couple of encounters I've had, they've, you know, run off pretty quick. And, you know, I'm well aware of the fact that that might not be the case sometimes, but I think there is like a little bit of an active surrender of like, you can't control all the things. Like something's either going to happen or it's not. Yeah, it's one of those things like no one has not been attacked by a bear because they were more worried about it than anyone else. Um, like being concerned or being overly worried about something isn't going to make it less likely to happen. Um, I've been really good in the past of just telling myself that everything's going to be fine regardless of the situation. Um, we've had our fair share of dangerous animal encounters on trail this summer, this past summer, and I've spent a lot of nights outdoors and have yet to get attacked by any kind of animal at all, other than that one weird deer we had in the Sierras. But that wasn't really a serious thing at all. And like 
We had a bear come through camp multiple times that night. We had a mountain lion come through camp and we're no worse for the wear for it. And I just, I don't know if it's naivety or, or naivete and just everything's going to be okay. Yeah. I mean, and like learn the things you need that, to learn. It's a liar. Yeah. Yeah. Learn the things you need to learn. And then again, like, you know, take precautions, be great about how you protect your food. There's obviously things that you can do to put yourself in a better situation. It's funny because I was more afraid when I was alone. There's well, actually like backing up, I think that there's a false sense of security with being with other people. And actually it's more likely that something is potentially going to happen like in a campsite with other people, because other people might not be as careful as you with, you know, what they do with their food. For example, like one of the pieces of advice that I got when I first started and I wasn't, I was cold soaking my food. I wasn't cooking, but was to not cook where you camp. Cause like the smell of food can attract animals and stuff. And I mean, even when I was just cold soaking in Arizona, um, I would stop and have dinner, you know, maybe an hour, an hour and a half before I was going to set up camp. You know, I would eat my big meal and I would use that energy to finish hiking for the day. And then I would set up camp and I would basically never eat in my tent anything at all. And part of that was, I was trying to do whatever I could to like assure myself that I was doing everything that I could, which then helped me feel a little bit less anxious. You know, whereas if you're at a campsite where there's three people, four people, five people, six people, right? Like we were all cooking, we were doing these kinds of things. Like it's actually more likely, I think, you know, um, but I felt safer yeah. because there were other people there to deal with it. So I don't know. I think part of it is like learn the best steps to take. And then you have to just decide for yourself, like the level of risk that you're willing to go with. Yeah. Uh, couldn't have said it better myself. I'm like, I have been the exact opposite of that in all of my prior experience. Like I'll cook right next to my tent. I'll keep my food inside my tent. And I mean, other than that one bear encounter in last and like, I've never had an issue with it. Do you have any rituals or activities that make you feel emotionally comfortable? Like maybe something that makes you feel more cozy and at home in your tent or at camp or something that makes you, you know, feel more at home in your head while you're hiking. How do you create that for yourself? Um, while I'm hiking, I started off not listening to music or podcasts or anything. I would pretty much save that for if I was having a really hard time, it was easy to take my mind off of things, but having like a ritual at camp at the end of the day was something that was very grounding of like, you showed up, you set up your tent, took out your sleeping bag, blew up your pad and cooked dinner. Things would be in the same spot in my tent every night. I knew where it was. My headlamp went there. My phone went here. My backpack went there. Just having some kind of habit made me feel good. And like listening to podcasts, which even though I don't know these people, they don't know me, was just comforting to have something that I could relate to off-trail life. I would listen to the same stuff off-trail that I do on-trail. So having like those familiar voices was something that brought me some level of comfort. Mm, yeah. I love that. Uh, I'm the same in terms of everything has a specific spot in my tent. Everything has a specific spot in my pack. Part of that is efficiency. You just get used to doing things the same way. But part of it is you find comfort, you know, where you can. I remember <laughs> the day that you said, you like turned to me and you were like, isn't it wild that, you know, we go from beautiful place to beautiful place. We just like, we pitch our tent in this gorgeous location. And in the morning we pack up and we're never going back to that spot again. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, like it is true. really weird. Yeah. And so, you know, when yeah. you're sleeping in a different spot every single night, this idea of, you know, what is comforting, what is grounding, what does home feel like, it really is something you have to create for yourself, right? And so everything has a place in my tent for sure. Um, and then I, I'd say three other things. One, echoing what you said about like having, you know, emotional comfort food, basically like favorite playlists and audiobooks. I think I've listened to the Twilight audiobooks on every single hike that I've been on, right? That like gives me much emotional comfort. Um, 
having a butt pad, like you and I both have pieces of like foam pads that we bring basically to sit on at breaks and not like I'm already dirty. It doesn't matter. I could just sit in the dirt, but there's like something I don't know, that feels kind of nice about like putting this little pad down and like, I'm going to sit on this pad and take a break. I don't know why that was comforting for me, but it was. And then I also like when we get to camp and the tent is set up and all that stuff. Like when I sit down to have dinner, I like having dinner surrounded by all of my items, which like sounds kind of (laughs) weird, but like I have like my little toiletry bag and I have all my food, right? So I can like eat the things that I want. And then I can like, you know, wash my face with the wet web. Like I can do all of this while sitting on the butt pad without having to get up. I very much like the ritual of eating dinner surrounded by everything that I own on trail. That's so true. It would be absolutely classic to like, see you sitting on your throne of goods and just like everything would be scattered. (laughs) And there you were eating your mashed potatoes and beans and making weird noises. I did like those mashed potatoes and beans. Yeah. Um, A little too much. I mean, all right. The last uh, question sort of in this category um, is about post-trail depression. Anything that you want to say about that? Um, It can be very real. I experienced it um, when I came home. Um, to the point that like, I remember my boss said something to me about, um, just not being the same after I'd gotten home and went back to work. Um, and I think that was for multiple reasons, but to be flooded with endorphins every day and like drowning in vitamin D to go back to working an indoor job and living this wild life and then going back to my home and all these things that, you know, I live a very privileged, easy life. And it was still weird to like, as much as I was ready to be done hiking, miss it a lot. And, you know, a lot of it is just biological chemical imbalances. And a lot of it is just missing the life that you had on trail. Like as bad as it may have been at some points, it was always fun. And it always, I don't know, like it's, kind of tough to put into words but it was comforting to be on trail and to not have the same thing to do every single day was like actually kind of scary and having like this list of things to do and having to drive places and talk to a bunch of people and uh could be overwhelming sometimes yeah i felt very similarly i've of course dealt with post-trial depression i think the thing that has helped me is expecting it um i expected it from the beginning just because the research i'd done and having made friends that had a lot more hiking experience than me that had told me it was something to kind of guard for. So expecting it was helpful. I think, again, expectations are a lot of it. Um, And then I also think the thing that helped me was having things that I love to come home to, whether that's people that I'm excited to see or for me, you know, work that I'm really ready to pick back up. Um, I mean, I got off trail and I feel like I was recording within like a week or maybe a week and a half. Like I got back to work really quickly and having that was for me actually quite helpful. But yeah, I, I, you know, definitely experienced that. And I think I wouldn't say that it's inevitable, but you know, this is a huge thing. It's also, it can be kind of isolating. I have found, you know, I have really supportive friends and family and that's great, but just because someone is excited for you that you did this thing, or, you know, maybe you've kept in touch a little bit, unless they go through it with you, they don't understand. And so like coming back home and being surrounded by people who like care, but don't, you know, and that's totally fine. Right. Like that's, I think how everybody is. And, you know, to miss having someone to like relate to on that level, I think can also be really tough. Yeah. It could be very isolating at times that, uh, there was no one in my off trail life that could relate to the experiences that I had this past summer. And I remember specifically when my boss 
said something to me about seeming to be off and not myself. Like I told him how I had such an incredible experience on trail. And now that I'm not doing that anymore, it just, I didn't seem to have quite as much of a spark. And he took it as, you know, I was sad that I wasn't on trail and that like things were okay, but it was more than that. It was, it wasn't like the sad that it was over. It was just such a great experience. And like, things just weren't the same anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It, it definitely changed the way I look at life in a better way. And I don't know, it's, it can be very difficult. Yeah. I'm excited to go back on trail. That's for sure. Yeah. Me too. Let's talk about gear a little bit. Um, maybe we can do these a little bit quicker. Um, two favorite pieces of gear. What do you love? Um, I love my tent. It's big. I'm like six one and I can lay down in it. My backpack can go at my feet. I have room on the sides for stuff. I got compliments on it all over the place. It's a light heart gear. So long six. Um, it's meant for taller people, but you can be short and still fit in it even better than I do. I also love my spoon. It's a long handled titanium spoon and I just, you know, I don't want to be getting my knuckles covered in mac and cheese. So the long handled spoon comes in handy and like reaching into the bottom of peanut butter jars and stuff like that. Get that long handle spoon. My two favorite pieces of gear um, after my first hike, or maybe was it first hike, second hike, I upgraded to um, sleeping pad-wise the Neo Air Women's Regular. I had a Neo Air, but I had like the really tiny one, the extra small or small one that kind of only went down to... I don't know, like mid thigh knees. And I was really quite uncomfortable. And my legs were always really cold. And my feet are always really cold in general. I'm always really cold in general. But so getting the full size of that that has a higher R value was amazing. I was a lot more comfortable. And then I also want to give a shout out to the Wazel Roga shorts. Those are the shorts that I have worn on every single hike. I wore the same pair for all 800 miles in Arizona and all 1600 miles last year. And I think what it had like a tiny hole in it, right? Um, yeah. I mean, I and I mean, they also had like other snags and were sun bleached and, you know, the drawstring was a little whatever, um, cause obviously I wore them to death. And so I have a new pair for this year, but, um, they made it through quite a lot specifically in Arizona. Every other piece of clothing that I had wound up ripping or tearing. There were a lot of thorns and overgrowth on that trail. And, you know, I would come out of sections like covered in blood so certain times from scratches and thorns and stuff. And those were the only things that didn't rip that I had on that hike. So I love those shorts. New gear for this year. What changes are you making? Um, I'm bringing a little lantern, um, something that we found like eating dinner together in the dark with our headlamps on kind of stunk. Like it was nice being able to see the person that you're sitting with if you're having a conversation or something like that without blinding someone or something like that. So um, that's something that I'm excited to bring. We got mugs for hot beverages while we're at camp. Um, and I also bought a nicer camera for this hike. Oh yeah. I'm so excited for that camera. And I mean, also you take beautiful pictures in general. So selfishly, I'm just really glad to have access to beautiful pictures to yeah. share on the internet and to keep for me. Um, but yeah, we got those collapsible sea to summit mugs. Um, I mean, we're basically glamping at this point. I have a stove now, oh, yeah. you know, that we can get to camp. We can, you know, be having hot like chocolate or hot beverages in our mugs while our dinner is cooking. That's going to be amazing. Um, I also bought us a Bluetooth headphones. One of the things that we found, and obviously it's great to have a hiking partner to have someone to talk to and stuff, but you know, sometimes it's also nice to not talk and to have something 
to listen to. And, you know, we, with music, it was fine. You know, we'd play it from one of our phones or something. But if it's something like an audiobook or a podcast where you really have to pay attention, you're basically hiking on top of each other to try to listen to it. And even that, it's like you can't really hear it that well. And so one of the things we wanted this year was to be able to have basically like an entree book club or, you know, listen to podcasts and then be able to talk about them afterwards. And so we got these like wireless Bluetooth headphones where you can have one and I can have one. So I'm like super, they were like 15 bucks. I'm so excited. Yeah, I'm beyond excited for this. Like, it's just going to be so great. Yeah. When you were first getting into long distance hiking, how did you sort through all the information out there basically to decide what gear was actually necessary for you versus what was hyped up but not necessary? What'd you do with that? Um, A lot of it came from like having prior camping experience, like knowing what I was able to get away with carrying and not carrying. Um, And a lot of it also comes down to just like knowing what you're comfortable with. Um, Like I came through a lot of people who like didn't carry a pillow and a lot of people online that said it's a waste, just like use your shoes or your clothes, whatever. Um, Personally, I knew that that was going to be an important thing for me to have. I just carry a small sea to summit inflatable pillow and it makes a world of difference to me um it's just like that little piece of civilization kind of thing that mm-hmm. brings me a lot of joy but a lot of it is just knowing what you're comfortable with and some of that does just come with experience of like trial and error um, yeah and that some of it really is kind of like too. the mugs go ahead yeah that because i was going to say like i take my, cause I bring sleep clothes with me. So I put like, you know, dry, warmer sleeping clothes on. And then I take my gross hiking clothes and I basically create, you know, a ball of them and use that as a pillow. And like that had nothing to do with me not sleeping well. Like I was perfectly comfortable in that regard. So like a pillow for me would be kind of a waste, you know? So it is also a personal thing of like, you learn what you actually want and it might be different than what someone else wants. And that's totally fine. For me, it's interesting you and I talking about this specifically because you, it was more of like a slow burn for you to acquire these skills. You'd been doing stuff of this capacity for a while, right? Whereas like I was completely new. So I owned no gear. I had no idea of anything. And so for me, um, I've shared this before, but it was Carrot Quinn's book, Through Hiking Will Break Your Heart. That's what got me into long distance hiking to begin with. And, um, Kara has since become a friend. And I basically, at the beginning, I just followed her advice. You know, for me, one of the strategies of sorting through potentially like overwhelming amounts of information, I don't need to choose the best thing. I just need to choose something that's going to work for me and that I don't obsess about it. So I decided, okay, I can relate to Kara's experience as being a woman in her 30s also who was new to this as well. And, you know, these are the things that she has found over trial and error you know, cause she was at that point, like, you know, a couple of years and a couple of long hikes ahead of where I was. And so I just basically picked someone who I could relate to and who seemed to have similar needs to me and basically just did what she did. I like took her gear list and like bought a lot of it essentially, um, sort of with the idea that you got to start somewhere. Um, you know, and she was a really good friend and mentor to me of like, Hey, this is too heavy. Maybe get this instead or try this. And, you know, I have made changes then myself over the course of the, you know, the last almost 3000 miles. But really, at the beginning, it was like, I just needed it to be easy. I trusted this person. And, you know, I sort of said, what's my criteria, right? Like, what do I need? And then with each item, does this meet my criteria? Is it good enough? And accepting that it might not be the best thing. Like, I don't tend to have buyer's remorse in that regard. Like, oh my God, what if another tent would have been a better fit for me? Like, I can make myself crazy with that type of stuff. So, you know, for me, it was basically pick stuff based on someone that I trust and then do test trips. You know, I went on my first ever backpacking trip, um, Paul and I 
I went uh, for two nights, I don't know, three weeks, maybe a month before I was leaving for my first long hike so I could test all my gear. And I wound up changing packs and I wound up changing tents. And I had bought those both from REI and you know it was easy to return and exchange for other things. But I didn't know how, exam- you don't know how, if something works until you do it. So, you know, test trips, get used gear, borrow gear from a friend, except that it won't be perfect the first time around. Those were all things that were helpful for me. And on that note too, like not everything needs to be ultralight. Not everything needs to be top of the line gear. Like whatever it takes to get you outdoors, enjoying the outdoors, just do that. Like you don't need to listen to weight weenies. You don't need to listen to people who are bringing everything, including the kitchen sink, whatever works for you. Go with that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, accept that like you will make changes. I don't know anyone who the very first gear that they brought on their very first trip is the same gear that they use, you know, multiple trips later. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Let's talk about food a little bit. This is something else like the budget or the gear that if it's of interest to people, I'm happy to post like a specific list of what I'm bringing this year. So if that's something that you want, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to do that at Gent. I think probably you would be too. Um, in general though, we got some questions about how to plan for enough food to sustain yourself, like winging it versus making a detailed plan and spreadsheet, um, on that topic in general. Um, what do you have to say? So I started off very much in the uh, wing it camp, um, and that proved to not be good for me um, for multiple reasons. I, first of all, wasn't sending myself enough myself enough food, and then going into the grocery store, you're tired. You just want to be like relaxing in a hotel room, and then standing in the aisle staring at like cereal bars and going, okay, how many do I need for this section, and trying to do all kinds of like mental math with calories for each day proved to me more stressful than I wanted. So for this hike, I'm, I've planned out how many calories I'm eating a day, what it takes to get to that point and doing a lot of mailed resupplies. And though it can maybe be a little more expensive shipping everything, saving myself that stress, I think is going to be more important to me than anything else. Yeah. I feel the same way. I've always done predominantly mailed resupplies with just some like supplementing with like chips and stuff that I buy in grocery stores in towns. Um, but I find it mentally a lot easier to just walk to the post office, pick up the box, take that food, put it into my pack. And then like you said, be able to lay down and rest versus, okay, I have to go to the grocery store. What do I need? What do I want to eat? Like that sort of decision-making fatigue. I find that to be pretty exhausting. Obviously the downside, like you said, like Shipping can be more expensive, but on the flip side, maybe you were able to buy food in bulk, right? That was a little bit cheaper. Um, I think the biggest downside is uh, getting sick of what you eat. Yeah, that can be a a very real thing, unfortunately. I mean, I remember when you and I first started hiking together, calorie-wise, you were eating less than me. And you were like, why am I losing so much weight? I'm like, "Uh, because you're not eating enough. (laughs) Yeah, I was eating like 2,000 calories a day. and then I was eating like 4,000. Yeah. But remember how small my pack was? (laughs) I under doctor's orders. I started eating like four thousand calories a day. Um, doctor's orders, doctors, our shivers, doctor who we were hiking with. Yeah, yeah. Um, I ended up gaining some weight back and ended up like I still wasn't eating exactly the right amount, but I was not like a pure skeleton by the time I got off trail. Though I had lost some weight. Yeah. I mean, it's in general harder for men to keep weight on than women. I mean, you see towards the end of long trails that a lot of women look healthy and fine. Right. And a lot of men, like you said, like look like very skeletal just because I mean the amount of calories that you're burning to carry that, like then the weight is so heavy that that becomes unmanageable. Like it really is kind of a fine line of like wanting to eat enough, right? Like more than you were eating at the beginning of the trail, but not to the point where you're like trying to carry like 7,000 calories a day. Right. 
For me, the food thing, um, I did not eat enough on my first two hikes. And part of that was just, you again, you don't know what you don't know. And I wound up, especially in Arizona, um, I lost weight. I didn't feel great. Um, I was in like real, like start, like basically like disordered eating mode, not mentally, but like physiologically, you'd be like starving on trail, especially towards the end of a section. And then would just really binge a lot in towns. And that wound up making me just not feel great. And so going, I've talked about this before, but going into the hike last year, one of my biggest goals was to not lose weight or to lose like as absolutely little weight as possible. And I was really successful with that. Like, I think when we came through bend, that was what 700 miles into it. And I had not lost any weight. And that was, I mean, I felt so proud of that. Um, obviously my pack was a little bit heavier because I was carrying more food, but, um, that's something that I'm thinking about a lot for this year too. It's less of an issue because it's a shorter hike, but making sure that I'm eating enough is really important to me. Um, and you know, having a stove means being able to have some more options. The cold soaking. I mean, I did that for basically all of the hiking that I've done until we got to the Sierras and I was fine with it. I ate literally the same thing every night, like mashed potatoes, like refried beans, you know, with some chips and some olive oil and some seasonings in there. And it sounds pretty gross, but when you're really hungry at the end of the day, it's really good. I mean, maybe you can attest to this. I wouldn't go that far. All right. But I didn't complain about it. (laughs) No, you never did complain about it. I will. I'll admit that you never once complained about it. And also I was done eating by the time you even started eating, you know? So it was, there's definitely some benefits again, like on the simplicity side, I always knew that, you know, when it got really cold, that's probably when I would buy a stove and, you know, going into the Sierras, you know, when we thought maybe there was going to be snow and it was like, you know, mid fall, um, that was, and that was exactly right. You know, I was totally fine doing the cold soap thing until it got cold. And now that I have a stove, I'm like, well, I might as well bring this instead because hot pasta is amazing. Yeah. Any other food related things that you wanted to talk about? Um, no, I think that's uh pretty well covered. Someone else asked, um, a, a question about like, uh, how did you cope with having to eat like really calorie dense or quote unhealthy foods on trail, which I thought was an interesting question. It got upvoted a bunch of times. I don't really know the best way to answer this because I don't know that I had ever really thought about it before, you know, the question was sort of under the the umbrella of, did you have any disordered eating thoughts? Um, and I think maybe that's a, a more personal question, depending upon what people's like food history is, you know, I don't have a disordered eating background. So I, I don't know that I'm the best person to speak to about that. I was fine. You know, I, you want more calorie dense things because, you know, the more calories that you have per ounce, the less food, you know, the less weight that you're carrying for the amount of food. So that's sometimes the goal with that said, I don't feel awesome. If I'm just like eating pop tarts and ramen all the time, I ate pop tarts and ramen on this hike for sure. Um, but I just didn't feel as good as if I was eating some other things. But I mean, let's be very clear. Like, I'd say some of the least nutrient dense choices that I make with food are on trail. And part of that is convenience. And part of it is, you know, I'm not dehydrating all these vegetables and all these different things. And I know some people are, and there's some great resources out there, like on Instagram and food blogs and stuff of people who make like incredible backcountry gourmet meals. And maybe sometime I would be interested in that. But, you know, for me, I always just figured this is a short ish period of time. I'm going to do what I can to not lose weight and to, you know, try to at least be like somewhat nutritionally conscious and in towns, especially like, all right, let's like try to eat some vegetables and some things I'm not getting on trail. Um, but yeah, I, that didn't, that I want to, I wanted to acknowledge that question because I think that it's a good and valid question, but it wasn't really an issue for me. Yeah, same. Um, I don't have a problematic history with food or anything or eating, um, like, getting to town, I would be craving like apples or blueberries or a salad or something like that. Just something that's fresh. Um, 
it was easy to get sick of the same stuff after a while. Um, but yeah, um, I dealt with it. Okay. But after a while I would just crave vegetables or fruits or just anything that was fresh. Yeah, I wound up craving fruit a lot. It's interesting to watch cravings on different hikes. And when I hiked the Arizona Trail, all I wanted was chocolate almond milk all the time. And I feel like last year, all I wanted was juice and pancakes. Oh, I also wanted Dr. Pepper a whole lot. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. Um, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the logistics of resupply packages. Um, you know, the question was, do you mail it somewhere before you leave? How do you know what to pack for each box? I think, again, this is something else that gets much easier over time. Like, it, it was funny. I found doing like doing the resupply boxes before my first hike to be completely overwhelming. Oh, my God, am I bringing enough? Am I bringing too much? Right. And I think that's just the case with anything new, right? You're always going to have some of that. Whereas now, um, I mean, I know you're coming out here next week before we leave on the hike and we're going to do our resupply together. And I'm so excited to pack resupply boxes. Yeah, me too. And um, it's usually something that I've not really looked forward to. So that's interesting. But it ends up like, even if it is stressful while you're doing it, it saves yourself stress in some foreign little town where they have a small selection of things. Like it's so much easier to order stuff online or like, you know what you like from your grocery store. It's a lot simpler in the long run to mail yourself stuff. Yeah. So at least in my experience. Yeah, me too. The logistics of how we're doing it this time, you know, so we have our 700 mile section, you know, we looked at all of the possible resupply towns. We said that if at all possible, we want to do not more than 20 miles a day on our full days and do half days into we're out of town. And ideally we would like to not be out for more than five days per stretch. So, you know, with that, and that's not always possible, right? Depending upon the section or, you know, what your goals are, budget or that type of things. But so we made our plan around that and decided which towns we were going to go to. And then, I mean, I have essentially like a Google Doc spreadsheet that I made that has that itinerary. So, you know, okay, this town's here, the next town's in, you know, 78 miles, that's going to be approximately this many days and this many nights. Okay, so I need this many dinners and this many days of food, right? And so it's can be tedious. Uh, I love doing this kind of stuff. I know that you do not. Um, but I, <laughs> I mostly did this, uh, you know, for us for our group. Um, and then you know, you all of the information in terms of where you can mail to most of its mailing general delivery, to yourself at a post office in that town, Um, especially with a trail like the PCT, the resources that are available, the guidebooks, the apps are so robust that it's really not difficult to do that information, Uh, like to put that information together of where to mailboxes to and I tend to have things sent usually 10 days before I'm estimating that I'm going to be there. Most places like post office and stuff, if the package is labeled properly, they will hold it for you for like anywhere from 15 to 30 days. Um, So, you know, checking in on those logistics. But I think we'll mail the first couple of packages before we leave ourselves. And then um, I have a friend who's going to be essentially, I'm going to give her the cash for it. And I'm printing out the, hey, this needs to be mailed to this place on this day. And she's going to take care of the mailing for me. But that's really what the logistics are. And as far as like what to put in each box, you know, that's depends how much stuff you're sending yourself. There's plenty of people who prefer to grocery shop along the way. I'd say that there's pros and cons to both approaches. You know, Jen, you spoke to some of the pros of, you know, your food's just there. It's not as stressful. It's easier. Um, You know, one of the downsides is that it does lock you into a schedule a little bit more like, oh, shoot, I have to get to this town, you know, by this time before the post office closes for the weekend. That's happened to me. Or, oh, I would like to go into this town instead because that's where my friends are going, but I can't because I've already pre-sent myself this package. So it does make it make you more inflexible, which I think works better for some folks than others. But that's, do you think I missed anything on the logistics side? No, I think you covered it perfectly. Okay. Let's talk about training. Um, what do yeah. you, t- <laughs> what do you do physically to train for a long hike? Oh, it depends. Uh, for this one, nothing. Um, yeah. It's going to be done... real interesting this year. You and I have done literal none training. 
yeah, it's hopefully it just stays interesting and not painful. Yeah. I mean, um, it's going to be painful. Listen, like, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be painful. Anyway, so go ahead. what do you, what have you done in the past or what works well for you for training? What works well for me is a good mix of running and then doing some hiking, even just walking around the neighborhood with a weighted pack on just getting your joints used to carrying extra weight. Um, before I left for the PCT back in July last summer, um, I was running like 30 miles a week and then hiking between like 15, 20 miles a week with a weighted pack on. So I was moving a lot. Um, and then any given day at work, I was walking about six miles. Uh, it's a very big facility. So I was covering a lot of ground getting ready for this hike, um, or for the past hike. So pretty much just time on your feet with a little extra weight and just movement is what has proven good for me. Yeah. I feel exactly the same way. I'd say I didn't do running leading up to it. I was just doing hiking and I feel like the best way to not that running doesn't help, but the best way for me to train for backpacking is backpacking, which is sometimes inconvenient, right? Cause you don't always live in a place where you have trails or you have access to that kind of elevation gain. Right. So I think it's doing something is better than doing nothing and not being super perfectionist about it. But yeah, walking around with a weighted pack, I mean, to the point where I would sometimes walk to the grocery store, right? Put the groceries in the backpack and walk back, right? Just try to walk, you know, if I had an appointment when I was going to therapy, you know, it was, I think six miles round trip, obviously it takes a lot of time to do that, but I know some folks walk to and from work, you know, with a pack on. Um, but I was doing a lot of on the weekends, like longer training hikes, you know, five, 10, 15, 20 miles with like up to like a 25, 26 pound pack, which was incredibly helpful. As far as training goes, I have done no training. I've walked with a pack on three times, each two, twice for 60 minutes and once for 90 minutes. Um, and the pack had maybe 10 pounds in it. Um, you know, we could go into other reasons why, you know, it's winter and I've done some treadmill stuff, but not really. I've had a lot going on personally in my life with, you know, transition and divorce and moving out and all the things. And it was essentially like something had to go. And this was the thing that got bumped off the schedule. Um, I feel slightly better that you and I are in the same like untrained position because, we're, yeah. you know, the thing, the only thing that makes me a little nervous is that the hike that we're doing because we're doing the desert section of the PCT, um, essentially daily mileage is dictated by water, right? The first 20 miles ish I think is dry. So it's like, we don't really have the option of doing let's ease in by doing eight miles a day where you kind of have to hike from water source to water source. So I am not at all prepared to put on a full pack and hike 20 miles. And so that should be interesting. I'm hopeful that I don't get injured. I'm aware of the fact that it's a possibility and, you know, going to stretch and take it as easy as possible. But, you know, I think training is one of those other things that people can get really, you know, freaked out about what does it take to be ready? That's definitely happened to me, but I have found that doing Something is better than doing nothing. Wearing, break, you know, wearing the shoes, the type of shoes that you're planning on wearing. I'm really blister prone, so kind of getting that stuff out of the way in training was always really helpful. Um, you know, but again, it, it's going to be what it's going to be. Yeah, that's pretty much what it's been like. I do what I can in the past to prepare myself, but in the back of my mind, I know that sometimes no level of preparedness is actually going to be beneficial. Like shit happens, unfortunately, and you can be blindsided by anything. Yeah. I mean, and one of the downsides of starting a hike in March, like we are, is that it really does change your training options. If you live somewhere that has a lot of snow that, you know, you just, everything's icy outside. You don't really have the access to training. All the other hikes that I have started have been in August, September, and July respectively. So I had a lot of weeks and months of training opportunities and I just don't this time around. Yeah. Same. Um, like getting off trail, having post-trail depression, 
Um, just didn't really want to do much of anything. And then right into winter in new England and yeah, I just, I, I didn't and don't want to go outside right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this hike is in like 15 days, so we'll see. Yeah. Let's talk about the trail family a little bit, um, maybe about hiking partner or group dynamics, especially because both of us had only ever done really solo hikes previous. How do you, this was one of the questions, how do you deal with days when you feel great, but your partner is struggling or vice versa, or when you need alone time, but your partner wants company? You want to talk about that a bit? Um, so just speaking based on you and I, because we spent a large amount of time together, um, like strictly one-on-one having like mutual respect. And if someone needs quiet time or needs to be by themselves a little bit, respecting that and not taking it personal because it's not always personal. Sometimes like energies within a group might not mesh so perfectly. And some people are better at being told that like you want solo time. Some people do take it personal and that can be tough. Um, and that was something that I had a hard time with. Some people can be more sensitive in, in certain things and just being respectful of everyone. And like you're in a group of six people, everyone needs are different. Everyone's needs are different. So, um, it's tough to cater to everyone while also catering to yourself, which is first and foremost, but you and I tended to be on the same wavelength most of the time of like if we needed quiet time, we were able to respect that. If we needed to just put our headphones in and jam, like we were good at being able to do that. But the bigger the group gets, the harder that can be. Cause like when we did have a group of six of us at, at some points, there were times where it was just like, I wanted to be alone. And part of it maybe wasn't me communicating that so great. But like, I remember specifically one time someone asked if I wanted to hike with them after lunch. And I said, honestly, I'm just, your energy and my energy are not the same right now. And I'm, I can't deal with that. And, uh, she took offense to that. Unfortunately, I didn't mean it to be offensive, but that's the way it came across. And it can just be something that's, uh, tricky to get around in a group dynamic. Yeah. I mean, in situations like this, you just like really have to communicate as well as possible. Right. And, you know, which I think, you know, everyone did a good job of. Um, yeah, I think another thing that comes to mind there's lots of different types of like hiking partnerships or groups, right? Like we know people, we met people on trail who had come out together, right? Whether they were sisters or husband and wife or, you know, whatever. And so they obviously had their own dynamics that, you know, came like predated the trail. I think there's a really different thing. If you're going to set out on something like this for the first time with someone that you have an off trail relationship with, I think some expectation setting is key. I actually think that these types of conversations are great to have in advance. You know, how do you want to handle it when X, Y, or Z thing happens, right? Like what if you get injured and I don't, what if you want extra rep, right? Like, to sort of talk through that if you're planning on starting with someone. I think like stuff in that vein is a smart idea. You know, similarly, you know, that's just using the example of, hey, like I'm going to need to have my own bed in towns. Like that's a conversation that I have had with everyone that we are, you know, all that all three people, you know, that are joining me on this hike that I've talked to about. And that's just like one simple thing. But kind of talking through expectations, I think is really nice. Um, I also think, you know, especially for relationships or people that you're meeting on trail or the, you know, those bonds that form, you know, in real time, sort of like what happened with us. I think there does have to be a point where you're communicating about what is this, right? Like I remember, cause when we, you know, it was me and you, um, 
you know, and, and other folks. And one of those uh, was King. And he was the one that I had met first, you know, he and I were hiking together first. And, you know, he would periodically say, Hey, just wanted to check in. Like, are you happy to continue traveling together? And the first time that he did, I really appreciated that because it's like not take, we didn't start together, right? Like not, yes, we're having a good time, but not taking for granted that just because we've been hiking together for a couple of days or a couple of weeks means it's going to continue. I remember like really clearly when you and I had the conversation of, okay, this is now a joint hike, you know, like we are doing this together. We're planning on going as far as we're going together. But, you know, I think without having that kind of communication, there can be assumptions. And, you know, even just how much of the day do you want to spend together? We knew people that were hiking partners that mostly they would meet up sometimes for lunch, but just at camp at night and would hike separately. Whereas like you and I hiked all day, every day together. Yeah. Um, and like in the Northern part of Washington, I was hiking with a guy that, you know, he was nice enough and but like, it, we just didn't click so great. Um, we didn't not get along or anything. We weren't arguing. I was just looking for more of like an intimate partnership with someone. And, uh, he was not the guy to have it with. And I woke up one morning, I was like, Hey man, I'm getting ready to hike out. And he was like, yeah, you can go on without me. Like, I think we're just kind of doing different stuff out here and neither of us were upset. We saw each other further on down the trail multiple times. Things are totally cool, but it's crazy. Most things can be solved through communication and (laughs) being honest with people. Spoiler alert. It's absolutely wild. Yeah. And like, it's not always easy to take emotion out of things, but just being able to talk with people and be honest is incredibly helpful and like, Hey, nothing personal. Your goals are different than mine. Um, So I think it's best that we split up. Yeah. Yeah. One of the hard things for me about hiking with other people is that when there are people to complain to, I think I complain more. I think this is just human nature in general. One of the things that I really liked about hiking alone, obviously the flip side is that you're really lonely and that's hard too, but I just kind of got on with it more because you have to, right? Like you're cold, you're hungry, you're tired, you're these kind of things. There's literally, I mean, I was alone on the Arizona trail, like not seeing any other humans for two, three, four or five days. And so you kind of just do it. Like I felt like I was tougher and more resilient when I was by myself. Um, I had less fun, right? So like there's a trade-off there, but that's something going into this hike, especially being undertrained and feeling like "Hmm, there's going to be many things to complain about. And sometimes it is nice to have the like, oh my God, isn't this such bullshit conversation with the people you're hiking with? That could, that kind of camaraderie can be really nice, but um, I am going to try to be aware of that. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that you complained too much or anything like that while we hiked together, I thought everything was within reason. And yeah, sometimes complaining is just what you have to do in a situation, especially a situation that can't be fixed or solved immediately. Yeah. Um, Sometimes you just need to recognize it sucks and talk about it and move on. Yeah. I think that one of the things though of group dynamics is like just being aware of like where you're pulling energy and where you're giving to the group. Right. And like, what are the things that I have to contribute to like make this group better? And I think they're going to be different for different people. Some people are great at organizing. Some people are great at making other people laugh. Some people are great at doing like camp chores. Right. And there's, you know, you find kind of like what the symbiotic relationship is if you're going to be, you know, traveling together with people for a while. Um, and just kind of being aware of like not pulling too much on like the group resources. Yeah, that's, 100% true. Um, and not that everyone has to have a fixed role in a group or anything, but just being conscientious of um, trying not to be too much of a drain on a group is a huge thing and trying not to be an emotional burden on people. Yeah. So pivoting a little bit, um, 
I got some questions about, like for me specifically about sobriety on trail and, you know, after having mentioned, you know, how much some folks tend to drink in like the through hiking culture. And it was interesting to see that that was a surprise to some people. Um, and again, don't want to paint with too broad of a brush. Of course, there's other sober hikers. There's people that drink, but don't drink that much. Right. Um, but in general, I would say that it is definitely part of the culture, right? Like get to town, like have this six pack of beer, do that kind of thing. And not necessarily that it's like a party vibe because I think everyone's pretty exhausted, but there definitely can be quite a bit of drinking. Um, I quit drinking almost eight years ago and have just tended over that time span to make more and more friends, either with people who don't drink or who drink really lightly. And it's just alcohol is not really a part of my day-to-day life. And this hike in particular, this was the most alcohol that I had been around since I quit drinking, which I was logically prepared for. I knew that that was going to be the case. I thought going southbound, it was going to be less of a party vibe than it is going northbound. So I'm interested to see how it is for us being like, you know, at the head of the bubble of northbounders this year. Um, But it was mostly fine. I felt like everyone that we were hiking with, like in our tight family was very respectful about that, but it did start to wear on me. I mean, I remember one time in particular that, you know, I made the decision not to go into town with everyone else just because I needed a break from kind of all of the drinking. And, you know, other than that, I feel like it was mostly fine, but for other, I have had some questions from other people who are, who are sober and interested in getting into long distance hiking that are a little bit nervous. A lot of the trail magic, um, uh, trail magic for anyone who doesn't know is like basically nice things that folks do for hikers, whether it's like leaving a cooler of cold drinks, you know, at the side of the road that they maintain, or, you know, they set up a station and they grill burgers or whatever. There's lots of different types of trail magic. And a lot of it is alcohol related. So it's not uncommon to come across like a cooler of beer, right? Which for me, I feel fine about that. It's not like a temptation. I'm good. But that is just something I guess to keep in mind for, you know, someone who is sober, that it's definitely a part of the culture. And that's another thing for me of wanting to stay in a hotel and have my own space, as opposed to some of the, you know, more popular trail angel situations or hostels that I think tends to be where a lot of the drinking congregates. And I'm just not really interested in that. So that raises my budget a little bit, um, or my necessary budget a little bit, but for me, it's worth it. Yeah. And, um, it seems like it's so often just taken for granted that people drink, we'd get to town and, you know, you would hear people talking about drinking and like, let's go get some beers. And you hear like younger people like putting it on a pedestal almost, which was kind of weird after spending time with you um, that not everyone drinks and it's totally cool. Like you don't need to try and pressure anyone into anything. Like let people do their own thing and don't think of anyone and is like any different just because they don't partake in something. Yeah. Totally. Um, is there anything else on that topic that you want to talk about? No, I mean, uh, it's tough for me to talk on it because like, I'm not much of a drinker and I don't like prioritize that getting into town. I'd much preferred my Dr. Peppers in town than a beer. Yeah. Yeah. So the last big topic that we're going to cover before, just kind of a few last questions. Um, there were, we definitely got a lot of questions around being a beginner, right? The idea of like, how do I start preparing for a long hike? What are the beginning stepping stones and preparations, you know, to have in place before getting out on trail? When does a newbie know that they're ready for a long distance hike, you know, training that type of stuff. Um, you know, and the idea of like, I feel like I'll never be ready for this type of adventure because there are so many unknowns. So how do you know when to just go for it? What do you think about that? Um, you'll never really know if you're ready to go for it. You just have to do it. I told like anyone that would listen, if you wait for anything to be perfect timing, 
you're probably going to end up just keep waiting, keeping waiting. Um, it's at some point you need to just pull the trigger and go, um, you can train as much as you want and all that. And unfortunately things might go poorly and you're off trail just as soon as you were on trail. A lot of it is just being like self-assured that things are going to be okay and work out and nothing's the end of the world. Even to this day is easy it is for me to just like load up my pack and go i know what i'm taking on every hike i never really really feel that i'm ready for any given hike as much as i might have done like i was moving like 50 miles a week before my last hike and i was still just i didn't feel ready for it and i was perfectly ready for it it turned out um you never know until you know yeah i agree with that i think i think you won't ever fully be ready i think that's true of so many things especially if you're a beginner and i definitely you know, can relate to anyone who has questions in this vein, because that was completely me. Like I was, you, I mean, you couldn't have been a more of a beginner. I had never gone camping ever, right? Like not even car camping. <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, I definitely, you know, resonate with that. That can be really scary. And, you know, particularly, I think it's one thing I remember when I first started running after, you know, I had never been sporty or athletic growing up. I never played sports. I had never done really like anything like that. And so being a beginning runner, like a new runner felt overwhelming, but also it was such a tiny part of my life, right? That it was like, okay, that would be, you know, eventually maybe an hour a day, right? And then you just do the rest of your life. The thing that I found really hard is like this entire life was new to me, right? What gear do I bring? How do I deal with navigation? How do I deal with animals? Like, how do I set up this tent? Like, what am I going to eat? What am I like? There was like, everything is unfamiliar. And I think that can feel really overwhelming. Something that helped me is to take that overwhelm and make it more concrete like to uh, like I would I really at the beginning like I made lists of like what am I actually scared about okay like write down those things and then like you can start to systematically parse through which of these fears are just they're going to be fears right like I'm scared I'm going to get attacked by a mountain lion okay there's like only so much that you can do with that as we already talked about but some of the fears are you know means that you need to acquire more skills you need to learn more things right so for me, it was making a list, like what's, what are the things that I don't know, but I would like to learn and then getting even more specifically, like what are the specific questions that I'd like to have answered and who am I going to ask, right? Am I going to take a map and compass class at my local REI? Am I going to watch YouTube videos on what to do in case of a bear encounter? You know, am I going to practice pitching this new tent that I bought in my backyard, you know, five times, uh, reading hiking blogs, books, that kind of thing. But I found like making it specific of like, what are the questions that I'm actually trying to answer? Right, which I would off the top of my head would imagine are questions like, uh, you know, okay, well, where are you hiking and when? Maybe that's based on your budget, based on the amount of time you have off, based on how far you can travel, the trail you most want to do. Like, what are you hiking and how long are you going to be out there? Are you going with other people? Are you going alone? What are you going to eat? What gear are you going to bring? What skills do you need to learn? Whether that's like broader skills like navigation um, or specific things for the trail you've chosen, right? Do there tend to be afternoon like thunder and lightning storms? Do you know what to do in lightning? And already this can sound like a really large list, but once you start to write it down, like all of these things are things that you can learn, right? And just remembering that like, okay, like I'm a smart, capable person who knows how to use the Googles, (laughs) can figure it out, (laughs) you know? And like, okay, how am I going to train? What's realistic for me? Um, Not everybody has time to do, you know, 50 miles a week of moving. That doesn't mean that you can't do a long hike, right? I'd say- yeah. 
specific things I think it's really important to learn about and follow leave no trace principles. I'll put a link to that in the show notes of basically just how to be a good steward of the land. Um, And then just test things, experiment, iterate, remember that you won't know how you feel about something until you're actually doing it, which I think both of us have said in different ways a bunch of times, like leave yourself space and grace to change your mind. Maybe you think you're going to go out on a 700 mile hike and it winds up being 200 miles. Okay, cool. Awesome. Like let the experience sort of be what it is. And I don't know that you'll ever really be ready, but the thing that has helped me is when I'm feeling that just like overwhelming fear is to sit down and get more specific. And this applies not just to hiking. I do this with other things too. But once I'm clear of like, okay, these are the 10 questions I need to answer. These are the three topics that I'm going to research. This is the one person that I'm going to ask to mentor me. It makes it feel like a lot more manageable, I think. Yeah. When you can break stuff down and be logical about stuff and like, whatever concerns you may have, if you can look into like where they're rooted from and what you can do to be best prepared for if that moment arises or, or whatever it may be helps out a lot. Yeah. And like just as much as possible to go into it with like a learning mindset, if you don't know how to do something, of course, it's going to feel really hard and scary. I think my expectations for my first hike were not realistic in regard to how hard it was going to be. It was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I, I mean, I cried like every yeah. single day and obviously I'm still doing it and I'm loving it more and more with each hike. But you know, just going in being like, this is a learning experience, right? I'm going to go on this two night test trip at like, you know, a local trail, you know, just to learn the purpose of this is learning. And my expectation is that it's going to be hard and that I'm, you know, going to be afraid that I don't know what I'm doing, or I'm going to meet other people who are more experienced. And I'm going to have imposter syndrome. Like all of those things happened to me and like, they didn't kill me. Right. And so it's like, I think a lot about and I talk a lot about this sort of like mantra and this idea that we can do hard things. I think about that a lot when I'm on hikes, you know, like it, it became quite a joke between you and I that I would be struggling and I'd be like, tell me that I'm pretty and that I'm tough and that I can do this. Right. And then like you would ask me for the same. And it was like sort of a joke to lighten the moment, but also like just remembering that you are capable and tough and you know, I'm a lot more resilient now than I was before I started doing long distance hiking. Like you gain resilience by doing things in which you have to be resilient, right? So it's like, you don't have to have all of that. Yes. It's nice to have some more practical skills before you get out on trail, but you don't have to be as tough as you're going to be at the beginning at the, you know what I mean? Like you'll get tougher. It'll just happen. Right. Any other beginning tips? I feel like I just went off on a little tangent there. No, I thought that was covered beautifully. Oh, well, thanks. You're pretty and tough and you can totally do this. <laughs> Thank you so much. What are you doing differently on this upcoming hike? Or what are you thinking about differently based on what you learned last year? Like trying to cap our mileage at 20 per day um, is really exciting because in the past, like 20 was usually my base planning for mileage. Um, I would usually end up doing more than that. Um, I just want to be able to be more leisurely on this hike. and you know, not having to set an alarm and not having to hike until after dark. If like, if it's not absolutely necessary, I just want to be able to relax more. All my other hikes have been like, you know, pound out 25 miles a day and and that stuff. And I just, as I said before, I'm just kind of over that style of hiking. I just want to enjoy myself a little more. Yeah. Isn't it funny though, that even saying like, I'm so excited to cap it at 20 miles a day, like 20 miles a day is still a lot, especially for someone who hasn't done this before that can sound kind of overwhelming. So, I mean, first of all, again, like that's not necessary, right? I know plenty of people that do hikes that do eight miles a day, 10 miles a day. It just changes how 
where you stop or what trails you do, right? Like there's something available for pretty much whatever style of hiking that you want to do. The thing for me, I mean, less so not being fit this time, but when I'm in like at least decent trail shape, the thing that I always have to remind myself when 20 miles sounds daunting is, you know, my average hiking pace is probably about two and a half miles an hour. Um, you know, I, I know that yours on your own is, is faster than that. And, uh, you know, a lot of other folks might be faster, but that's what it tends to average out to for me. And at that pace, that's eight hours of hiking to do 20 miles. And then you add in breaks and all that stuff. Like, and you can still get to camp by a decent time when you remember that's literally the only thing you're doing all day is walking, right? Like that's it. That's your entire life. And then it becomes possible once you get into trail shape, you know, if, if that is something that your body can do that it becomes possible. Yeah. And, uh, that is like the biggest thing that people who don't hike, if you tell them like, Oh yeah, I'll do like 20 miles a day. They're like, Oh my God, how can you do that? When there's literally nothing else to do it, they go down easy sometimes. Yeah. I mean, especially when like you're on trail before 7am and you just, that's what you do. Right. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, I agree with you. I think we already talked about a bunch of the things that we're doing differently in terms of different gear. You know, this is the first hike that I've ever started with other people. So that's yeah. both really exciting and also has had some more logistical coordination, right. Balancing different people's preferences and schedules. I will put in the show notes links to uh, the Instagram accounts for the three other folks that I'm hiking with um, you and then the two other people in case other people want to follow along. But yeah, doing differently for me, it's it's a lot of what we said about like letting go of the ego of, you know, I'm going to be this really hardcore hiker. Like I'm, I really want to have fun. I want to have a good time and, you know, like experience these, this nature. And, you know, I love desert hiking and I just, I like you, I want to have a good time more than I want to hike all 700 miles. So if something happens and that becomes not possible for any reason, I honestly don't feel sad about it. Yeah. I think that's like my biggest, um, biggest gain in like my confidence in hiking over the past few years is just being okay with whatever happens. If you're not enjoying it for whatever reason, it's okay to get off trail. It's okay to go home. It's okay to take some days off, whatever you have to do, just do that. And it's easier said than done as I'm sitting on my bed, but like no one's going to think any less of you if you're not out hiking, you know, people are usually going to be happy that you're home. Yeah. Yeah. Or they do think whatever, and that's their problem. You know, it's exactly, you know, I think about a lot of logistical stuff has to happen, you know, for me to be able to take these six weeks off, whether, you know, like doing a lot of work in advance, you know, planning to put things on hold, having had the money saved, like there's a lot that goes into it. And yet to the yes, type two fun, you know, it doesn't have to be fun in the moment in order for me to want to do it. But overall, I want to be having a good time, right? Otherwise, why am I doing this? You know, so like keeping that in mind, you know, and not being so attached to like, like you said, mileage or any of those things. Um, yeah, I think we're both pretty in alignment with what this hike is going to be in that regard. Yeah, I agree. Any future hikes on your bucket list? What would you love to do? Um, I would love to do the Colorado trail. We talked about that, uh, quite a bit this past summer. Um, I've done half of the long trail. I'd love to do the entire thing end to end in Vermont. The lost coast trail in California is something that I've recently been looking into like as of today. I think it's like an 80 mile trail on the coast of California, which looks super cool. And then the superior hiking trail, it's like a lesser known trail that's like on the banks of Lake superior sort of. And yeah, I mean, I'd like to start doing like lesser known trails. Um, even though two of the ones that I just named were incredibly well-known trails, but yeah, there's a lot of trails out there and those are just a few that I would like to do. 
Yeah, I'm with you on the Superior Hiking Trail. That was I was really torn between that and the Arizona Trail in 2017, just because they're both good fall hikes. Um, and I wound up obviously picking Arizona, but have wanted to do the Superior Hiking Trail since then. I want to finish the PCT, you know, so that will probably be a 2020 thing to do those last like whatever 300, 350 miles. Um, you know, hopefully we can figure out like coordinate schedules and do that. That would be really awesome. It would be great to finish that. Surprisingly, I, I want to do the Florida Trail, which is funny because it's like pretty polarizing. I know some people that absolutely hate it. It's like swamps and a lot of road walking. And I don't know, but I don't know why it appeals to me, but it does maybe because it's like foreign and hard in different ways. Kind of shrug emoji on that, why I want to do that. But also because it's a good hike to do in the winter. Uh, it's one of the only ones that you can do in, you know, the North America winter. So I think the Florida Trail is on my radar. Um, Hadrian's Wall, an almost 90 mile hike across the UK. I will be doing that this summer. So that is a hike. Obviously it will be, you know, shorter than, um, some of these other ones that we're talking about, but yeah, I'd say superior hiking trail, Florida trail, finishing the PCT Hadrian's wall. That's top of mind on my bucket list, but I mean, let's not get crazy. I want to hike everything. Right. So, yeah, it's so crazy how like at some point you can just be so over hiking and so done with it. And then like when we quit the PCT this past summer, we were off trail for like a day and planning on getting back on trail this coming March. Oh yeah. I mean, I have that book. I forget what the title of it is. It's not in front of me. It's like the, you know, best hikes of the world or, you know, yeah. hikes to do whatever. And that we looked through when, um, last time you were here, I mean, it's basically like hiking inspiration porn, but you know, every page of that I want to hike, I want to do all of it. Right. So, I mean, obviously the question is how to make that work with schedule and money and is that realistic? And, you know, but yeah, there's a lot out there and I would love to see it and explore it and tell stories from it. So I'm really excited to do this hike with you. Yeah. I'm really excited to get back on trail with you and with shivs and spend some time with Muffy. It's going to be super interesting. What's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? At Tom Grossmith on Instagram. That is uh, pretty much my only social media usage nowadays. I love it. I will put links to that in the show notes. Um, you know, by the time this episode airs, you know, it'll be just a couple days between then and when we are starting on trail. Um, I will be posting daily stories, like sort of micro blog posts per day on Instagram if you want to, people want to follow along. But yeah, if there's any other questions, any topics that people would love to hear more about, you know, um, I guess I can't speak for you, but I would be happy to do this again. Yeah, I would be absolutely thrilled to do it again. Any last things that you wanted to say for folks? Um, pretty much like take what you heard here kind of, and like, just do whatever you, or do whatever gets you on trail and makes you happy. You don't need to be an ultralighter. You don't need to bring absolutely everything. If you don't want to, whatever gets you outdoors, it doesn't need to be high end gear. It can be thrift store stuff, hand-me-downs, whatever it takes to enjoy the outdoors. Do that. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe if all of this sounds like fun to learn about and not at all something you're interested in, you know, like that's fine too. It's like, I, I love what you said, like take what works for you from here and leave what doesn't. And if you have any other questions, feel free to ask us. Yeah. Reach out if you need to. I'd awesome. love to talk to some of you guys. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me for this. Thank you for having me. I love it. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I want to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net, so go say hi. 
And now, as I mentioned way back at the top of the episode, I am joined by Callie, one of the wonderful folks who came to our first Real Talk retreat in Bend, Oregon this past January. Hi, Callie. Hi, Nicole. We're going to do a fun little round of rapid fire questions if you're ready. I am always ready. What are you totally obsessed with right now? Okay, I was actually prepared for this question this time. I just watched Call Me By Your Name a couple of days ago. Have you seen that movie? I read, the, I read the book. It was one of the book club oh, picks last year. Oh, my God. It is like the most beautiful, perfect, magical, amazing movie I've ever seen in my life. And I just got the book. I started it yesterday. Did you like the book? Uh, yeah, I did. Um, I, I mean, there were some parts of it, like nothing's perfect, right? But yes, I, yeah. I really liked it. It was different, like stylistically than a lot of other things that I read. It was, yeah, I think it was 2018. It was one of the Patreon book club picks. So that was fun to talk about with people. Okay. Yeah. The movie is just, it's amazing. I loved it. Well, that's good to know. I haven't seen the movie yet. I will put that on my watch list. <laughs> What's an intentional money related decision that you've made recently? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Well, I'm actually in money love school, metal divorce, money love school right now. And that's like a six month money program. So I've been doing a lot of, a lot of money stuff. Um, so lately that's been tracking my daily spendings and earnings and being just like really intentional about like how, how do I feel when I spend? How do I feel when I earn? Uh, why am I making certain decisions with my money because it's so emotional. It's like very little logic and it goes back to some really like deep seated self-worth stuff and family stories and patterns. And um, so like really figuring out what's going on there has been really, really hard, but really good. Yeah. Uh, Cause I'm not, so I guess I would say most of my money stuff is not intentional at all. And so I'm trying to figure out how to be intentional. Yeah. I love that. What's one yeah. thing that you've been struggling with lately that has felt a little challenging? Mm. Interesting question. Um, family stuff can be challenging. Um, I, I moved. I moved to Fresno, California, to be closer with family, um, and I started a new job which has been wonderful. Um, and also family can be hard when you're different and feel different and make some different choices. So, but also respecting them. So for me, it's trying to learn this really great balance about how to have healthy relationships and have really good boundaries and to just love and accept people for who they are and to accept myself and to give myself the space that I need, um, to be happy. So that's been, that's been fun. Yeah. No big deal. Just like light, easy things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, super easy stuff. It's cool. <laughs> What's something that you'd love to learn more about this year? Mm, I've been doing a lot of reading about like ecological feminism. So um, I started really studying like on my own some feminist theory last year, which has really been connected to like getting sober too and figuring out um, like my romantic relationships and all that stuff. Um, and I, oh, I studied environmental law and environmental and water concentration from law school. And I practiced environmental law. And it's been fascinating to see the similarity, similarities in 
environmental policy and how we think about the environment and also how that intersects with feminism and feminist history, like going back to like the enclosure acts in Europe where like private property essentially didn't exist until this happened and how it still affects the way that we view and speak about the earth and the law today. Um, so that's been really fun and I'm really having a good time learning about that. And I want to focus on that a lot this year. That's fascinating. Um, it's, I, so, well, it's so interesting. <laughs> yeah. Cause you would think that, because uh, I thought that there were two totally separate interests of mine, like my interest in environmental law, and then I have this interest on the side in feminist history and theory, and actually, like, they intersect in such an amazing way. Um, so, so, yeah, it's fun. Yeah, I'm going to stop myself from asking more questions about that because <laughs> I'm sure I have more questions. Well, do, you think, like, do you think, like, Mother like mother Earth, like, like even our language around it, like Virgin Land, or I work a lot with, like, the Bureau of Reclamation, which is popular at West, like, the Bureau of Reclamation did federal law and essentially, like, reclaimed these Western states with irrigation rights. And so it was, like, the idea that, you know, if a land is fallow or unbarren and not, like, quote-unquote productive, like, in this really patriarchal, um, capitalistic way, then it's fallow and, like, barren, quote-unquote. So, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. So interesting. Um, last question. Yeah. What's something that you have recently been wishing people were more open and honest about? Mm. Maybe, I think like political stuff, actually, maybe it's just in the community I'm in, but there's like a lot of people aren't being honest about their political beliefs because, you know, Trump is our president and there are a lot of Republicans that are still in office. Um, and, but people also like won't be honest about why they've chosen to make some of those political decisions, which I think if, you know, if you should be honest and align your political beliefs with your personal day-to-day life. And mm-hmm. if you can't have those conversations, then maybe you should reconsider some of your views. Yeah. So you're one of the folks who came to the New Year's Real Talk retreat. And yeah. now that registration is open for the summer retreats, I'm excited to spend a couple minutes chatting and asking you some questions about your experience. Please do. So amazing. I know. I miss you already. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I like missed you guys the day you left. Um, can you first share why you decided to come? Yeah, you know, so I I stopped drinking about two and a half years ago and I was following um, the home podcast and then I found your podcast um, around the same time. And so Holly Whitaker, Laura McCallum's work was like, oh, this is like how you get sober. And then I found you and it was like, you can get sober and your life can open up into all this super amazing new things and new people and new experiences. Um, so I felt that your work was really important piece of my sobriety story, I guess. Um, and I had just graduated law school and took the bar and you were doing your first retreat. So it just felt super serendipitous and a really amazing way to support you because I believe and love your work so much. Um, and also to do something really good and healthy for myself to celebrate that winding up those last few years. Yeah. Um, What were you nervous about before the retreat? 
I, you know, it's always, I'm pretty introverted. Like, I'm super introverted. So it's always nerve-wracking to go into a new social situation and you don't know anyone and you don't know if you're going to like anybody, if they're going to like you. But it's a such a special, self-selected group of people. <laughs> like, you're not, I don't know, like, Regina George isn't going to Nicole Tonight's retreat, right? <laughs> like, they're, like, they're just the most amazing, wonderful girls and um, it was so special. So that was not something to be worried about at all, actually. Yeah, it was funny talking. I mean, obviously, because I talked to each of you individually before the retreat and the most common concern or fear that was shared was kind of nerves around other people, which completely makes sense. It's like a really brave thing to travel, you know, for some folks across the country to like spend this time with a bunch of strangers from the internet, right? And like the reminder <laughs> that what you just said is true, that like people that are coming to this are, they want the same things out of it. Right. So it's like nice to remember that like people who right. don't want to do this kind of work aren't going to come. They're not going to be there. And people who are, I don't know, like judge. And it was just so great because we were able to really hold space for each other and talk about really deep and um, vulnerable stuff, like, like immediately right off the bat. And it wasn't weird or uncomfortable. It was just really loving and supportive. So what do you feel you got out of the experience? What was most impactful for you? Well, I loved your goal setting. So the, I did your goal setting process for the first time 2017 and I loved it. So like personally, from what I've taken out of it and been able to apply it to the rest of my year, it was awesome to have that space and time to do that um, with you in that setting. And it was just great to take time, like get out of my day-to-day routine and really dive into and think about like where I want certain aspects of my life to go and where I'm happy, where I'm not happy and like where I would like to put more energy and attention. And it can be difficult to do that like in your day-to-day routine, I think. So that was me. I think so too. I think there's like something really special that happens when you step out of your everyday life and it's almost counterintuitive how much easier it is to do that kind of like vulnerable deep work and conversations with people who you don't know because they don't have like a stake in your life, right? Like there's no, oh my God, what's going to happen at work on Monday when this person knows that I, you know, said this vulnerable thing over the weekend or, you know, like everyone can be really supportive for each other in a way that was real. And also there's like more space, I think, to be yourself sometimes that doesn't unfortunately happen in day-to-day life. I agree completely. Mm -hmm. So last question, what would you say to someone listening who's maybe been thinking about signing up, but's feeling nervous about the investment or about, you know, going on retreat with a group of strangers, anything that you would say to someone who's interested, but unsure? I mean, that, that was me. I, that, that would be me talking to me because I think I got one of the last spots on your retreat. Yeah, you did. Um, I Oh yeah. Which <laughs> like, Oh my God. So I had just like, I had taken the bar and just started work and I heard about your treat and I was like, uh, I don't know. You know, it's expensive. Like I'm not making money yet. I have a ton of student loans and I don't know if I can take time off from this new job, take a couple days. Um, and then I just was really called to do it. And it's so, it's, so if you're on the fence, if you're thinking about it, like, don't be afraid, make it happen. And it'll be so worth it because yeah, I've never, I felt so good to support you and to support someone's work that I believe in so much. And also I got so much value out of it. So it was like really a, if we're talking about like intentional money spending like that it felt so good to be able to do that and 
I would do it again in a heartbeat. So hopefully do it again next year. <laughs> I know. I, I've already been thinking like, can we just get the same group of people together every year? Yes. Because even like the email chains and like the messages and stuff that have happened since, it's been really nice to see like that actual like ongoing relationships have been formed. Oh, it's yeah. Like, like girl, Carrie sent me a birthday card for my 30th birthday, which is something that we talked about at the retreat. So I've, yeah, I've had um, relationships develop out of it and it's just been wonderful and so special. So. That makes me so happy. And to everyone listening, yeah. if you're interested in learning more about the retreats or perhaps scheduling a time to chat with me to see if it's the right fit for you, just go to NicoleAntoinette.com slash retreats. That's where you will find all of the information because if the thought of spending four days on retreat with me and a small group of wonderful like-minded people this summer, if that resonates with you, then I would love to have you join us. So that's it for today. And until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 